Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Moriarty, son of Goin. Oh, nice. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> I was going to call you Colin, son of Gerard. Son of Gerard. <laughs> <laughs> How's life? Everything's good. I'm enjoying my time here in, uh, in Santa Monica with you. We're, having, we're all over halfway done now because we started the sixth episode of 10, so now we're over halfway done. I know. It's exhausting to record it these. It is. I know it sounds so ridiculous. I'm not complaining. We love doing this. But I record sacred symbols, for for instance, once a week. So that's like a very easy kind of, you know, I, I research a lot and prepare for it. But when you we're do. ready to go, it's over and done with. But these we kind of prepare for for an eight-week period. And then we get together and record 10 of them in like three days. And it's a lot. Do you guys think it's longer. easy to be this on? <laughs> <laughs> we me- love you guys. Dagan is mentally exhausted. You have a nice <laughs> pair of socks on that Thank I enjoy. Thank you. They're very colorful. They are stripey. They almost look holiday-like, don't they? With the they remind candy me of, cane striping. Yeah, they remind me a little bit of like Lifesavers. They do, actually. Yeah. You're right. That's a good point. Like the Lifesavers package? <laughs> I'm down. I, I, I'll take it. Dagan, today, as we continue this fourth wave of recordings for mm-hmm. Knockback, these are all your topics. And you brought up a topic that's actually quite important to the Moriarty clan. Yes. Which is the Lord of the Rings. Indeed. Arguably our dad's favorite piece of fiction of all time. And something that trickled down, certainly to you, me, and Allie, our sister. I don't know that Dana, our other sister, really cared about it. Yeah, I don't it. know where Dana stands on the... But She's Allie a loves voracious it. reader and yeah. loves literature, but I'm not sure where she is on the fantasy she, genre. She is voracious when she reads. Like, I, on Instagram with Dana, like, it's she's starting a new book, like, every three days. Yeah, and she's very much into contemporary fiction. Right. New York Times bestseller list and everything. She's very in tune with that. Right. But Which, she has no love of the fantasy, I don't think. I don't think so. Can't account for taste, Dana. <laughs> he said it, Dana, not me. <laughs> yeah, Dana listens to this show. Everyone in our family listens to it. We we get little notes and feedback every once in a while, and Dana had a lot of feedback for the Breakfast Club <laughs> episode. Sorry, Basically we, saying she should have been involved. Yeah, in. yeah sorry, to, sorry for letting you down. <laughs> she we, hated it. We did our best. Now, taken before we get into the Lord of the Rings, we have been doing something new on this wave. You remembered. I did, called Changing the Subject. Yes, sir. With a apostrophe at the end of changing this is basically when dagan brings up a topic that is a non sequitur to what we're talking about today that we'll discuss for a few minutes that would be a something so minor or minor for us that would not be a normal full-fledged episode and we're going to see how you guys like it yeah yeah let us know how you like it because i'm always down for change i would like to evolve things yeah i'm gonna be quite honest with you you guys could love it it's probably not coming back the next season i'm gonna have something new to do oh I shouldn't say that. Well, I like your honesty anyway and your forth- <laughs> and you're very forthright we, as we evolve from magikarp into Girados. Is that how you oh. say it? That's how you say it, right? Girados? Girados. 
You know how there are things like po- Pokemon is a great example of the Pokemon oh, names where yeah. you never, I've never heard anyone say any of these names out loud. I don't think in my entire life. They're so tough. who the hell knows how to say any? My of these son's things. getting into Pokemon now. It's daunting because I never knew it very well. You know, he loves it. Well, he's gonna be in for a treat with Switch with this year and next year two Pokemon games. Yeah, he's excited out. about that. So we'll see how that all goes. But Dagan, what is the topic for changing so, the subject? This is a topic that's going to be near and dear to your heart, my friend. And that is one that the older people, I guess anyone older than their late 20s that are listening to the show will probably remember. And that is the Care Bears. Oh. You remember the Care Bears. Of course. I love the Care Bears. You Talk to us about the Care Bears a little bit. It's funny, man, because I can't remember any details about what the show was actually about. It yeah. Was, it was a thing that I absolutely adored when I was very young. In fact... My, I guess, nursery, my first bedroom in our old house, yeah. old, old house, was a, was Care Bear themed. Care Bear everything. And up through high school, I, I wish I knew where it was. I, my hope is that dad still has it. That even when we moved out of that house and into the big house in, in Brookhaven, we still had the light switch plate with the wallpaper on yes. it. And I had that in my room all the way through high school just as a, like a memento. <laughs> that's awesome. And I wonder if that's still floating around somewhere. But Probably. The, the Care Bears, like, I honestly... I think I was so young when Care Bears was on. I think I was a little too young for it contemporaneous to when it was relevant. You might have been. That I don't rem- I had a bunch of them and like the, the stuffed animals, but I don't remember any details about I know that each one had like a, a personality or mood and stuff like that depending yeah. on the, the image on their on their belly. But I don't remember like what their end game was. Like what what was going on in that world? It's a good I question. I don't remember who the Was there a bad guy? There must have Did been. they have the fight? Yeah, everybody had the power. Shitty bear. Whatever. <laughs> I don't remember if there was a bad guy. I remember the cloud car, right? They drove around in the sky with that, even though it had wheels. Yeah, it didn't. Well, they had right? to land. They had to land. And I remember the plush dolls because you had them, but they also were the action figures. Remember the action figures actually had the little tuft of real hair on the yeah, top, yeah, I yeah. think? And they were posable. Those were kind of cool, the action figures, actually. There's something very aesthetically pleasing about the Care Bears, I think. Even to the adult eye, in terms of the wide color palette that's used on them, and the, very some colorful. of the, some of the images are cool on the belly, like the rain cloud or the sun, and all you know the rainbow, you know the, the clover. I wish I really remembered more about their personalities and like what their names were and stuff like that, but I really don't. One I had like don't. a typhoon. Was it no? I don't. <laughs> a tornado. <laughs> a tornado. <laughs> like a an, like a, it was like a, a a piece of ground with like a split through it for earthquake. <laughs> I think you might. I think we might be on to something. Something here. a little more nefarious. Very, very post-apocalyptic Care Bears. I like this idea, actually. Yeah. yeah. Somebody's gonna do this now to buy up, buy up the old action figures and do their own. That'll be funny. That'll be a lot of fun. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have much more to say about them. I can tell you with absolute certainty, I have never read a word about the Care Bears as an adult. Like in this nostalgic internet space that we're in, I've never been like, "What's going on with the Care Bears?" Right? Isn't that funny? Like Care Bears was kind of thrust upon you. Like mom and dad just decided that you were gonna have everything Care Bears when you were born, and that's what your nursery was. And, you had the, and I remember you had the high chair. I remember dad cut out the little swaths of uh, wallpaper and then sort of glued them onto the back of your wooden high chair. Yep. So you had them on your high chair. It was very sweet. It was very cute. It was very cute. I mean, I had the Return of the Jedi room, dude. So you were really cool with your Care Bear room yeah. at the same time. But and I think Derek, our brother-in-law, messaged us. I think it was him that messaged us recently. Was it him or was it yeah, dad? Yeah, I think it was. No, I think it was Derek. That the garbage can. Because our dad, I don't know if this was common, but our dad would like put wallpaper on like everything in a room or any, you know, like not only the switches, but like, you know, the garbage pail. And this is what I was talking about. Dagan had like a tall cylindrical aluminum garbage pail that was like wrapped in, in Return of the Jedi wallpaper. Yeah. 
and it's still floating around our family. That's so funny. And I think it's at mom's beach house. Right? Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Something like that. And the curtains, you had Return of the Jedi curtains, which yeah. I had in my bedroom through high school. <laughs> I literally had the audacity to bring girls in that bedroom. That's amazing. And, you know, you were ahead of the curve with the nerd culture oh, stuff. Dude, right? I really was a little bit, not that I was the only one, but, you know, there were a lot of people in that late 90s, early 2000s era before nerd culture was at all mainstream or all cool, where I was like, you know, fuck it. This is what I do. This right. is who I am. This is you. I had. Take it or leave it. You know, I had sexy girls on the wall and I next to, you know, a, an A-wing hanging from my ceiling. <laughs> I like you the know? I like the dichotomy, to be honest. That's fun. What was that poster I had in my room with the, or the four girls with their asses hanging out? Do you remember that? <laughs> Dude, I remember that. And I remember being your age, you know, back 10 years prior and dad getting upset about this little tiny skateboard. I don't know if you remember the shorties uh, hardware ads from skateboard magazines. It, there was like this model. Her name was Rosa. And it was all it was was a picture of her. She was obviously naked. She was probably in a bathing suit, but she was just laying in, you know, a bunch of bolts. So they were covering her privates and stuff like that. Dad's like, you're absolutely not having that in your room. I was 18 years old. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I had like 13 and I had <laughs> these four. It was like four girls, like four blonde girls. I, I think in like that. a pickup truck. Like you, and it was just their asses, basically, <laughs> just hanging on my wall. For some that was acceptable. Pretty though. trashy. <laughs> pretty tra- a pretty trashy thing. That I had on my wall. That's probably, hilarious. I probably bought it at Spencer's. Were or you being like ironic or did you really think that was awesome? I don't know that I thought it was awesome. I was like, these girls are hot. Okay. So I don't know that I was simple... like really trying to impress anyone. Right, right, right. I think it was like behind my drum kit because I had my drum kit in my bedroom. And I think it was like hanging behind <laughs> I think it was like hanging behind it. I completely remember that whole room. I do too. Like I had it was a very eclectic and weird. It was I'm still eclectic today, so I guess it's representative of it. I had like a cardboard cutout Darth Maul. I remember that. I had like all sorts of, the room was pretty big. I had like a lot of shit in it. Drum kit in one corner. My desk was in another corner. Yeah. I had a skylight in there. You did. You which did was indeed. Cool. I had this weird ghetto setup of like stacked textbooks and like Lego things so I can t- turn my big ass CRT towards my desk when I was writing guides. <laughs> the fact that we, when you and I were going through my stuff in, at dad's house last summer and I found a bunch of the pictures of my room in the late, in the 90s and early 2000s, it was so cool. That's I was like, nostalgic. I was really happy, like, I was so happy that I found like a picture of my old computer workstation. It's like, yeah, because rem- now you know exactly what it looks like. It's was, not just in your mind's eye. I was just glued to that fucking seat, dude. You really were. Yeah. That's where it all started. It did. It all started. Look how it worked out. It all started right there. It all started <laughs> right there. Do you have anything else to say about the Care Bears? No, the I just uh, adorable heart-shaped noses. The end. They were very cute. Are they still around? I think they still are. But when my daughter, my first kid was born, when, when Lilia was born, my daughter, my oldest, was 2007. She was born in 2007. I remember her, the first thing I ever bought her, you know, before she was born, when we first found out we were having a child, was a Care Bear in Manhattan Mall. And I guess that was 2000, late 2006, sometime in 2006. So they were still around then. I think it's type, type, the type of thing where I don't know if there's any more media behind it. Maybe there is a new series. I shouldn't say that. Maybe there is a new CG series. But I still see the toys in toy stores. So cool. Yeah, something's never changed. Something's never. I changed. I gotta tell you, I, I I really, I'm so intrigued by this idea that I have no idea what the Care Bears was about that I don't think I can ever read about it now. Yeah, like I, just... I almost wanted to like I'm like I have no I I couldn't tell you the first thing that that show was about. <laughs> no, I really don't know. I know that they all had emotions or something or f- personalities based. Yeah, on... they fought with that little not fought, whatever they did that it kind of projected from, you know, tender heart bear, the little tender heart symbol kind of projected, whatever. But some of them were grumpy, right? Good yeah. luck bear had the clover, right? Yeah, yeah, the clo- yeah, there was a grumpy one. I think it was the rain cloud. Yes, that's what it which was. Which is cool as hell, but adorable. Yeah, it's very cute. All but, right. But not for me. Now, you know, I'm going to tell you this, you know that there's grown ass men dressing up as Care Bears at conventions right now. <laughs> there's a grown man in a Care Bear outfit right now as you're listening to this somewhere in the world. That's amazing. God bless.
He's in a Care Bear outfit. He's a 40-year-old man. And he's masturbating. But now, Dagan, oh Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> now let's start talking. Perfect segue to Gandalf. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. This is a topic you wanted to bring up. I think this is a broad topic. And I was telling you it is. that I've not read the books since high school. I read them once. I read them very quickly. And not I have memories of that. And we'll talk about that. Okay. And obviously, I saw the films. We have a funny story of seeing it with dad in 2002. I think I was a senior in high school of Fellowship of the Rings. But this is a book series that I have very early memories of. In our old house, we lived in this big house. Our parents had this huge master bedroom with basically attached to it, a huge bathroom with like a jacuzzi in it, but also this like almost changing room. Yeah. That room was fucking huge in hindsight. I have no idea. Like there was like a changing room with like two sinks in it and like a big skylight and then next to it was like a walk-in closet anyway yeah there was a table tucked into the corner of that room with the lord of the rings books i remember it really well it was like just three the three lord of the rings books and that was all that was on there and i remember it was like a thing of like dad honoring the books in some way a shrine yeah and i remember being really drawn to it but dad telling me like you're not old enough you're not going to understand it they are very complicated still as an adult to read but it wasn't until I was like 14 or 15 that I endeavored. I read The Hobbit, which I think is superior to The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I agree. We'll get into that. And I remember The Hobbit very, very well compared to The Lord of the Rings story. But that's kind of my, my remembrance of it was that it was this weird, sacred piece of fiction to our father. You know, if you read about The Lord of the Rings, it was, you know, when it came out in the mid 50s, finally, it found a very popular niche in popular culture in the 60s and 70s. And dad was that's when dad got swept into it. So I'm not saying that like no one knew about it. But when I started to come around to it in the 90s, no one talked about the Lord of the Rings. It wasn't like this this relevant thing, even though it had significant effects on the games and media that we were absorbing at that time. So I'm curious, like what you remember about this and when you were like really exposed to it as a story. You know, what's really interesting. My very earliest memory of The Hobbit or any J.R. Tolkien. Are we going to go with Tolkien or Tolkien or Tolkien? I always say Tolkien, but I don't know. Let's go with Tolkien. Is, is there like a conflict about I that? I feel like, the well, we'll get into more later, but I feel like the British say it Tolkien, but we'll just go with Tolkien. The British don't know how to speak English. <laughs> so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> take that as you will. But my very earliest memory of it, Kyle, was I remember being very young. I, was, I had to be no older than seven or eight if I was a day <laughs> and laying in bed, like in between mom and dad under the, you know, in, in their bed in the morning time. I don't know if I was waking them up or something. And the book might've been there on like one of the bedside tables or something, but they were like, this is one of the, I remember specifically, I don't know if it was mom or dad saying, this is one of the books that you have to read. And it's so good. I don't know if one of them was reading at the time and they, it was just there. So they were talking to me about it. That was one of the books that mom and dad turned me on to the other. I talked about it before, but the other two that I remember were Watership Down, that they were like really adamant about me reading, and the other one was like Clan of the Cave Bear. And I remember really embracing The Hobbit and Watership Down for some reason. Clan of the Cave Bear, like I just see this image of like you know you got to really, re I, which I never read by the way. I still have never read it. You know, like this is a great book. It's about cavemen you know and i just have this image in my head of being like oh caveman that's awesome and like flipping it over my shoulder like luke skywalker like oh that's right I'm like <laughs> not reading that like, yeah that's a that's an important book in our family too our niece ayla is named after the protagonist of, right of which of which is which is a true thing yeah. and i shouldn't just dismiss it because i've never read it but i think i was so immersed in science fiction and gi joe and everything at that point it was like caveman yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, just it, it, does, it does sound like a more nuanced story especially for the time in which it came out because it's about 
Neanderthals finding a Cro-Magnon girl, right? Something like that. Something like a like modern that. human girl and taking care of her. Is that what I it is? I think that's what it's about. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. I think it's about like, yeah, the Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnon meeting. It's supposed to be like wonderful and wonderfully written, but those are the three books and two of the three I really embraced. And I think I read Watership Down a little later, but The Hobbit I read probably, they, Mom and Dad didn't read it to me, but I guess I remember reading it probably around the time we moved from one house to the other. So I must have been around, I probably read it for the first time sometime between being 10 and being 13. I know that's sort of a broad space in time, but that's the first time I read The Hobbit. And by the time I had graduated high school, I had read it a couple of times. And I don't think it was required reading for AP English or anything like that. So I think I had read that on my own two or three times by the time high school ended. And I loved it. I absolutely adored it. And at the same time, also, I was familiar with probably just being a bit of an animation nerd and stuff like that. I was familiar with the Rankin and Bass Hobbit cartoon that was around in the 80s. I think it was made in the 70s, but I remember watching it in the 80s. I don't know if it was on cable initially or I had seen it and rented it, just knowing that there was an animated Hobbit film, which I still love. I highly, if no one's, if you guys haven't seen the Rankin and Bass, the Hobbit film, definitely check it out. It's awesome. It's very, very cool. Very nostalgic and very 70s and really, really wonderful character designs. So that was my trajectory with the Hobbit. And then believe it or not, I didn't read, although mom and dad were recommending the Lord of the Rings to me, I didn't read that until college. And by the time I was done with college, I had read the trilogy through twice. So from somewhere from 1994 to 1998, I had read through the entire trilogy two times. And I think I might have read The Hobbit again as well. I was really, really inspired, in particular, like yourself, by The Hobbit. So that was where it started for me. What about for you? I remember The Hobbit being a preferable book to me again to the trilogy. It's more self-contained. and In reading about where the trilogy came from, it wasn't even evident to Tolkien that it was going to be about the ring and stuff like that. Like that no. was not, which is really interesting to read about because it's so obvious. But, you know, I remember dad giving me his green, he has like this green old paperback version of The Hobbit and he handed it to me. I don't remember when. I think it was, I feel like it was the summer of 1999 when I was going into 10th grade that I read The Hobbit for the first time and I was absolutely enamored with it. I was especially enamored with Tom Bombadil, the character, and yes, wh- who I absolutely love. And the visual and visceral nature of the book, the the dragon sitting on top of the horde, there's like certain things that you can see, like the, the ring being in the river, being discovered by this weird creature who becomes obsessed with it. You can see it in your mind's eye in a very different way than I think a lot of books evoke for me. Like there are sometimes, there's sometimes when I read a book, maybe it's more about <laughs> what I'm reading or or specifically like the skill or lack thereof of the author in question, but you just get different visual cues based on what you're reading. I think depth can go too far. And what I loved about Tolkien was that he was not only was I had never read the Cimmerillion and a lot of the kind of ancillary stuff outside of the trilogy in the Hobbit. I just never read it, but I like that. Unlike George Martin, who has shoved so much nonsense into the game of Thrones or the, whatever they're called, the fire and ice, whatever the fuck they're called books that I like cannot even get through half of one of those. Cause I'm like, this is so, unnecessarily dense yeah it felt like there was a real judicious use of words which is ironic considering how big the book is or how big you know the trilogy is technically six books split into two three books you know so i remember just being really the visual flair that i had in my mind's eye reading the hobbit really really stuck with me for a long time i remember it's one of those few things where you don't remember necessarily what the book's about only you remember reading it 
And I had a similar feeling with the Fellowship of the Rings. The Two Towers is actually my favorite entry in the trilogy. It's a great but book. But I have a similar thing with the Fellowship. The next summer, reading that, and no, and just it was just a page turner. As much as I love Bilbo and all these characters, it's really the ancillary kind of world that Tolkien has built. But what I was referring to earlier was that he didn't feel the need, or didn't seem to feel the need to shove every single thing into it, even though in his Bible. And in the lore building he was doing in the appendices and stuff, it was all actually there for you to look at, whether it was a map or an explanation of this old ancient race or, you know, the Nazgul, like who, who are these weird creatures or, you know, whatever the case might be. I loved how deliberate it felt. It feels almost like reading a very thorough wikia, you know, like one of these, you know, like Wikipedia yeah. or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. But like long before the Internet. And that's what I remember about it the yeah. most, you know, that's well said. Yeah. So you came up with this topic, so I want to do it justice. Sure. Do you want to talk about The Hobbit as an individual book and then talk about the trilogy? Absolutely. Or do you... so, I think, yeah, I think it's hard to avoid talking about The Hobbit. I was doing some research and just reading around. This is so thoroughly covered that it seems regurgitative, regurgitative I guess was what I would want to say. That's, to a good, that's a good way. Talk about this very deep history. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of shit about Tolkien. As a man, Tolkien as a soldier, Absolutely. Tolkien as an author professor like it, there's a lot this is a lot and I, I don't know that we can encapsulate it in a 90 minute or 120 minute podcast yeah but i wonder what kind of impact the hobbit left on you as a, a fan of fiction and a fan I, I assume a fantasy because up to this point i was exposed to fantasy only through video games and in a limited way dungeons and dragons and sure but it was really this book that opened my mind to this entire subsection and this very popular subsection of fiction that I just wasn't exposed to it before that I was reading a lot of sci-fi and a lot of young adult novels, whether, you know, whatever the case might be, but it, you know, the giver and all these kinds of things, whatever it might be. But I was never drawn into that world until Tolkien did that for me. And my suspicion is that that's the case for many, many millions of people around. Absolutely. The world. Absolutely. I love kind of tracing back and being reflective of the Hobbit or just Tolkien's work in general and how much it inspired literature, but how much specifically that it inspired and influenced the fantasy genre, obviously. Everything that we grew up with, as you said, D&D, Ultima, Exodus, the Dragon Quest series, Final Fantasy, all the RPG and JRPG role-playing games, later on the Dragonlance books, right? Every single notable work of fiction in the fantasy genre and the impact that Tolkien had on those things. And we'll also talk about what you and I were discussing a little bit earlier, which I was especially really interested in researching everything that sort of inspired Tolkien to write works of fantasy because he didn't invent this stuff. He took it and and made it what it is, I think, but he it didn't start with him, in other words, and the things that inspired him and how that chain reaction then, you know, inspired him to write and how he inspired everything that came after in the fantasy genre. And it's so interesting to know and to really be mindful of the fact that the fantasy genre in general would never be the same without Tolkien's influence. It would be something completely different. You know, who knows? And I love sort of examining his impact on that. And I should also preface it by saying you actually played D&D and stuff. I actually had a group of friends from the, about the time I was 12 or 13 when we moved to our new new neighborhood in Brookhaven that... A lot of the guys I skateboarded with that were also big into surfing and stuff, those specific friends that I made through doing the, you know, through action sports, basically, they all played D&D &D and had old, most of them had older brothers 
that played D&D as well. And they were very, very much into Dungeons and Dragons. They were very much into Shadowrun. They were very much into RPGs in general. And I always thought it was really cool, but I never once played it. I never once played any tabletop. Never, you never played a tabletop Never played game? a tabletop RPG. Wow, and wild. then later, even in college, some of my dear friends that I met, like my friend Colin, who I'm still very close with today, he still plays. I have different friends like Colin, another friend Jeff that lives nearby, that they still do D&D campaigns and play. And I always wanted to get involved. I just never have. It's very accessible compared to the way it used to be. They've, right. They've simplified it. I grew up with D&D edition two which one did you put you what was that Adva- advanced D&D? yeah AD&D, okay. yeah okay and edition two ran for a long time it i think they're on the fifth or sixth edition now like they're actually iterating way quicker but there's a lot of things that i think they got rid of like thaco and all these kind of really complicated statistics but it's fun to just sit there and role play you're as good as your dun- dungeon master and you're as good as your willingness to kind of put your pride and ego away and play your character sure yeah. and did you ever dm kyle uh, sometimes, but in small like games when I was very young. When I played in college and as an adult, I was always a participant. Okay. And I love rolling dice and playing the game. And it's funny, man, because in an ironic way, the tabletop role-playing genre was an existential threat, really, with the advent of video games and the advent of the internet. And then with kind of the inclusion of Twitch and streaming and kind of live video and even yeah. VOD, shit lives again, dude. Like, Critical Role is fucking huge. It's one of the biggest things. There are billboards. I can't speak for where everyone else lives, but there are billboards on highways in Los Angeles for Critical Role. Which is amazing. Which is a Twitch show and a podcast. And they go on, those shows are four, five, six hours each. You know, and, and we're people, talking about tabletop RPG games. Yeah, and people just literally watching them play. And I was on an episode of Critical Role, so I, I know, so I know that, or they were, they technically were on our show. You guys collaborated, and it was fun, and it was cool, and it, and it opened up my, you know, I when I moved to San Francisco, I played a lot of D and D with the guys I lived with. I also played a lot of Axis and Allies and Shogun and these other games. Yes, but, I have friends that were into that stuff too. Which is, I, and it's so funny to me that you like these games are great, dude. Yeah, like and Axis they were and always Allies right is, there, and I just never played them. You just got to kind of get over the hump and learn how to play. That's all, right? And it's very, I mean, if you play video game role-playing games, you're basically realizing that the video game just does all of the work for you, yeah. which is totally fine, and I like that. But if you just strip it down to its bare essence, you're not really doing anything you've never done before. Right, right, right. It is a little bit of a learning curve, like you said. And, then, you know, all, all my I have to say, too, all my groups of friends along the way from when I was younger to now are very welcoming. They're just like, come, because I feel a little newbie-ish. You know, like, oh, I've, I've, it's always been on the periphery, but I've never really played. And they're like, just come. You'll learn fast. Like, Watch a couple of campaigns if you want, however you're comfortable. They're very welcoming. I just never, I've never done it, but I think it's very cool. And I think it's so cool, especially talking about things like Critical Role, where it's so relevant still. Even in the advent, all the technology and tablets and computers and video games, you know, we all love that stuff. But the fact that it could still be relevant today says a lot. You know, I think about that just with board games in general, with tabletop games, gaming in general. I'm really grateful that it's still a thing. It sort of feels like books. Everybody thought books were going to go away when e- when the advent of e-books sort of sprung up, sprung on us. Yeah, well said. But it never went away. It's and fu- it's so it, neat. It's funny you say that, too, because I was one of the people that really embraced when I got iPad 2. And I guess 2011, I embraced, you know, I downloaded the Amazon Kindle app on it and started buying all my books digitally. And then several years later, I'm like, I don't want to do this. I'd rather buy physical books. You want to have those books, that yeah. tangible experience yeah. of having that book. So I'm one of the people that was the problem and then one of the people that tried to be the solution, I guess. So... Do you want to just give a quick synopsis of what The Hobbit's about? Sure. So kind of ground, of, like give a foundational element for people that have not read it. First of all, I highly recommend you read The Hobbit. It's very readable. It's oh. shorter. I don't. I think it's maybe longer than The Two Towers. I'm not positive about that. Two Towers is the shortest Might of the three Might be the shortest, books yeah. Of the trilogy, but yes. it's, it's not a huge read. As a 14-year-old, 
I guess I was an advanced reader at that time for my age. I read a lot of more complex books, but if a 14 year old Colin can read it, certainly if you're listening to this and you're an adult, yeah. you really shouldn't have much of a problem. It's, it's just a book that requires your attention. Oh, exactly. You know, Tolkien's works in general, I think especially The Hobbit is the pinnacle of really wonderful descriptive writing. I mean, this was an Oxford professor. You know, the guy knows how to write. He wasn't just a hack writing about dragons and stuff like that. He, the, the, man, the man knows language and the man knows writing. There's such a warmth and a welcoming sort of tone to his writing and such a descriptive intonation to everything and such a wonderful flow to the books and pacing to the books that it's almost impossible, I think, to get bored. And I think it's very impossible to get lost. You know, they're just ultimately very interesting and very engaging. And it had a really huge, I'm sure it had the same for you, Kyle, I'd like you to speak to that, but it had a very big impact on me as a writer as well. You know, not just for the subject matter, which was really inspiring and very creative, but just for the, the language and the writing as well. So the, the Hobbit's basically set in a land, a fictional land called Middle Earth, and it centers around a place in Middle Earth called the Shire, where these creatures called Hobbits live. And think about sort of a mixture between whatever like almost like a little man like men that are short in stature almost like a combination i guess for argument's sake between a dwarf and a man their own creature you know these fuzzy footed creatures but humanoid very humanoid in nature and they live in a quiet little part of this universe called the shire and basically it centers around a character named bilbo bilbo baggins and he's visited one day mysteriously by a wizard who I believe, Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't read The Hobbit in a little while, but the character of Gandalf, the wizard that visits Bilbo, he was already a known entity in that land. I think so, yeah. Like, Bilbo knew of him. They had seen each other in their travels. He was sort of a legendary figure already. Mysterious, though. People never knew quite what to make of him type of thing. So Gandalf visits Bilbo one day and says, basically, that, to make a long story short, there's a bunch of dwarves coming to visit you they're going to invite you on a quest basically so what make a long story short these a number of dwarves show up at bilbo's house and basically invite him on this mysterious quest to recover treasure that was stolen from them and it's a jarring thing because bilbo is this quiet little creature living in this quiet little place that has the opposite lifestyle of adventure he's very comfortable he loves to eat he loves to drink he loves the creature comforts of home smoking his pipe you know tending his garden and they're inviting him sort of this you know kind-hearted but lazy creature and here's the getting invited on this adventure and they go on this adventure the end goal being to arrive at this dragon's hoard to recover their stolen treasure and the things that happen along the way between the group of dwarves, Bilbo, and Gandalf, the wizard. Am I missing any key points in there? I don't think so. I don't think we have to get too deep into the... I mean, the plot's very, very deep. Yeah, a lot of cool things happen. Yeah, it's that's a good way of, of at least prefacing it. And, you know, the book came out in 1937. And it's interesting because I didn't realize that The Hobbit was so popular with this publisher that The Lord of the Rings was solicited by the publisher as a, pre, as a sequel. Yeah. And, and to say... We want more of this, and it took a long time for him to produce that. But what I like about The Hobbit is that it's just self. It, it never, there never really needed to be more than what it was, and it sits totally as a great book by itself without the basically the sequel to it, which is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Although it's a sequel of many decades in the future, and it happens to be about this one thing that seems very obvious what it would be about. But as we said earlier, 
wasn't necessarily the through line that he wanted to even pursue. Yeah. In fact, I was reading something about how the original idea he had was that Bilbo was out of basically out of his treasure and wanted to go get more. Yes, I read that too, which is fast. I never knew that before. That's fascinating. So it's I'm like, you don't want it to be about the ring, like this weird ring. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what, Kyle, the ring feels. You know, Colin and I are just what Colin and I are discussing is along somewhere along the quest, Bilbo discovers this magical ring. And in the book of The Hobbit itself, if you never knew it was to follow in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you would just think it's something sort of, ah, for lack of a better word, arbitrary that happens along his adventure. He finds this ring, which is an unexpected little side quest of a thing that had happens, and he finds and keeps this ring and meets this creature, and the ring saves him. You know, he realizes that when he slips it on his finger, he disappears. It's this powerful relic that he finds, and he never tells anybody about it, right, initially. And it feels, what Colin's saying is, what ha- what happens later on in the trilogy, obviously, is the whole story centers around around this ring. But Tolkien never thought that that was going to be a thing. Like Colin's saying, it was a whole other thing was initially planned, where Bilbo ran out of treasure and he needed more or whatever it was. Yeah, like the One Ring is the entire point of the entire saga. Exactly. But it's I love that it starts out as this totally arbitrary, not so arbitrary. Cool. Yeah, it's just it is this totally ancillary, thread. ancillary part of the quest. Almost like a MacGuffin in a way. Like exactly. This, well, I like that you use the word warmth out of it. I drew the same thing out of it. I remember sitting up in bed in my bedroom in Brookhaven, and really, I used to tear through books when I was a kid. But I remember being so riveted by it. I think I read it twice in a row. It really did change my respect and appreciation for, the, like we said, the things that I already enjoyed. You know, and again, you said it, like he didn't come up with the idea of a dwarf. He didn't come up with the idea of a halfling or an orc, you know, or anything like that. He drew those from other, I guess, more nascent fantasy ideas. Sure. And this European, very European lore-centric thing. Fantasy as we know it, and I'm not trying to be exclusionary because it's exclusionary to our own culture, but fantasy is incredibly and entirely drawn from European lore and European mythology. If you think about King Arthur and Robin Hood and all of these things, like you you get, not that Robin Hood's fantasy, but what I'm talking about is in terms well, of like... it has the, those elements. Yeah. Sure. That's a great example. The, there's something about the European experience, the Viking experience, the Vandal experience, the Germanic experience the Roman experience to an extent. And so it's drawing a lot of these different disparate things that for the first time in my mind encapsulated what I had already so deeply enjoyed about even comedy, even Monty Python or, you know, you know, weird things like that where it's like, oh, there's some sort of lineage here that connects the European culture and swords and armor and shields and dragons and, magical wizards with staves and or you know with or beautiful crystalline orbs on top of them and whatnot for the first time the hobbit brought it all together for me and i remember after reading the hobbit before reading the trilogy which took me a little while to get to because the trilogy was a little more it looked a little more daunting to me and i don't know if it's that dad built it up that i was i was not quite ready to read it or whatever okay but i i used to be as i said i think on a previous episode i used to be part of the sci-fi book club where i would i, I used to voraciously read science fiction and it was introduced to some really weird science fiction that's that, you know, like Starship Troopers and stuff that ended up through this sci-fi book club. And it was very similar to Columbia House where I, you know, basically just stole a bunch of CDs when I was a kid. This was a whole, this was the thing where you would send them a money, you'd buy a book or two and they would send you 10 books in the mail. And there was a parallel thing that used to get in the mail, like a, an advertisement back in these analog days of a fantasy book club. And I started getting these fantasy books sent to me. 
And I was fucking riveted by them. A lot of them were probably throwaway. I'm, some of them were great, like Terry Goodkind books and stuff like that. I'm not saying that they were all like right. throwaway books, but sure, sure. I remember just pouring through this shit and really being obsessed, Dagan, with the the intricacies of fantasy through the prism of D and D through the prism also of my contemporary experiences, like being in the woods. And there was something that was so exciting to me and so and so welcoming about camping and not that I would do it, but a group of people camping out in the woods, cooking their food on a fire, sharing war stories with each other. Then they go into a a nearby town and go to a tavern and they drink and they meet interesting people. And it's just the minutia of the storytelling that almost is parallel in some weird way to the fellowship of the rings where they meet Strider for the first time, where I see that I still see that in my head and and it's, it's, it drew me in. So it's not these big epic Confront confrontations with Sauron and his and the and the Nazgul and the armies that they fight in the books. That's like not even really what draws me into it. Right. It's like these weird and mundane things that I like really love to this day. Like the like what's in their backpacks and like what do they need to travel with and how right. do they get from point A to point B That's and right. who do they meet? Like way more interesting to me than than the pursuit of the ring. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's what drew it. That's what if that makes any sense to the audience, that's what that got drawn out of me. And again, it goes back, I think, to Tolkien's insistence on depth yes. even if the depth wasn't in the actual narrative you said it inspired you as a writer inspired me as a writer too i think it increased my verbosity which might not be a good idea but it also it draws in stark contrast for instance the road is my cormac mccarthy's the road is my favorite piece of fiction of all time and the great thing about that book is that it doesn't tell you anything the writing is very lean but that's like the antithesis of why tolkien's good and i only realized it at that time yeah no that's very well put Kyle. i love that because the little details are what makes it so immersive and the descriptiveness, you know, and he there's a real joy. Tolkien takes a real joy in that, I think, in his writing, because it never really stops. That's just the way he writes. You know, he really wants to set he it's sort of indulgent, but it, it works so well for a warmth and for feeling like you really know the characters and you really know that universe. It's incredibly know. indulgent. You know, it really is. Now, let me ask you this. And we can. And this is a more interesting question, I think, in regard to the trilogy, which we'll talk about momentarily. But sure. There is one thing that I want to ask you about Tolkien's writing that in critique that I've read, whether it's meant intentionally, nefariously, or even in a racist way, is there something kind of boiled down or under the surface about the way he reduces the personalities of individuals to their race? In other words, there's no good orc, but there doesn't seem to really be a truly bad, like, well, maybe not true elves, but maybe a bad example. But it seems like the elves are righteous, the dwarves are like hardworking and trustworthy, mm. the orcs are evil, and there's like no exceptions or a few exceptions to the rules. Did I you ever read you... into it like that? Because I, I was really, I never did, and I was surprised to read some critiques that reduced it into an almost racial sense of writing. That's very interesting, Kyle. No, I never read into it that way. In fact, I could kind of see what you're talking about a little bit if you really think about it and get, you know, sort of get introspective about it, but... I would actually argue that point because even though the elves are, you know, notoriously and historically in the stories good, they're also very proud and they're faulted for that. And the same thing with the dwarves. The dwarves are portrayed as a, you know, a quote unquote good race, but they're also portrayed as extremely greedy to a fault. In fact, to their demise in some cases. And it's also kind of construed that the dwarves and the elves just have a historical... The dwarves and the elves always smacked to me of the English and the French, Mm. right? They're allies. They have a common enemy, but they really don't like each other. But 
the two main in the trilogy when we talk about that later the two the one of the main dwarves and one of the main elves become great friends against all odds and against whatever was historically you know what had historically occurred between those two races the hobbits were a good kind-hearted people but they were notoriously lazy so i don't think so i think the characters were presented as very gray you know there was you know you take the we haven't talked about him yet but baromir who was a great knight and son of gondor which is one of these great races and one of these great places in middle earth was you know he fell because of his bane which was his greed or his desire to help only his people so i think that's actually incorrect yeah that makes sense i just wanted to inquire i never really thought too deeply about it let's segue into the trilogy though so as i said earlier the surprise kind of success of the hobbit in this very underdeveloped fantasy genre that had, you know, some famous contributors like H.G. Wells and others at the turn of the century, the 19th into the 20th century. This stuff had existed. And you could really draw the lineage back even to the Middle Ages and stuff like that. But and and I mean, the legacy of King Arthur and all those kinds of things is, is complete fantasy. I just don't think that people looked at it through that lens at that time. The, I guess, surprise interwar success of this book would necessitated a sort of sequel of some sort from the publisher. And so he delivered it. And I know the war kind of interrupted everything. And, and also his, his inability to kind of curtail his writing also contributed to kind of a delay in it. But the trilogy wasn't actually published until 54. And it was arbitrarily split up, which is something I didn't know until much later. We know each of the fellowship, the two towers and, and the return of the King are all split into two sections, but they didn't publish them all at the same time. In fact, because they were afraid that they were going to bomb and they would rather the Fellowship of the Rings bomb before they ever brought out the other the other two books, and they were wrong. And so then that kind of arbitrary split just maintained itself through, you know, from the 50s all the way to today. And I really like that particular angle of it. But the books came out in the mid-50s, and people fell in love with them. And, the the you know, just to give a very, I guess, brief synopsis of what the book's about, it's really about this evil entity named Sauron who thousands of years prior had lost control of the ring that we're talking about. And the ring, as we know, ends up kind of going on this weird journey, ends up in a river, basically, and discovered by this creature who ends up, Gollum, who ends up enraptured with it and under its spell and under its control, calling it his precious, as we all know. (laughs) And it's about this adventure to basically eradicate the ring from the planet, from Middle-earth against this evil forces and other interested parties in the in this powerful ring. Is that a fair way to kind of explain it without well spoiling said. too much of it? Very well said. And it focuses around nine characters. It's often referred to as the company of the ring. The primary protagonist is a distant cousin of Bilbo Baggins named Frodo Baggins, who is much younger than Bilbo. And Frodo is a hobbit, and so is... Sam, Mary, and Pippin, his his boys, basically, the crew. The crew. And so tell me a little bit about these kind of clowns. Sure, absolutely. This, this group of clowns, this, so, this brotherhood. <laughs> so Frodo Baggins is, they refer to him basically as his, as Bilbo's nephew, right? Bilbo is Bilbo Baggins, who is the Hobbit's protagonist, is Frodo's uncle, correct? Oh, that's right, yeah. Kaya said right? Cousin, yeah. Is, that cor- is that correct? Oh, I thought they were cousins. Maybe they're distant cousins? Maybe, maybe something like that. Yeah, maybe you're right. I should what? probably know that. That's a good. That's a good. Yeah, it's one of those little details that's yeah. sort of elusive. But think about Frodo is a much younger Hobbit than Bilbo, but they're very close. They have a very close friendship. Frodo is basically more or less raised by Bilbo, and Frodo 
you know, at the I don't want to. How much are we spoiling said books? I think you could spoil. Yeah, I think it's fine to spoil it. I okay. Just, I don't think we have to go crazy with the synopses, but okay. Yeah. So Bilbo ends up going to live in Rivendell, which is a place of the elves where the elf lord Elrond sort of reigns and lives. And Bilbo ends up sort of befriending the elves through his various quests of the Hobbit and subsequent things, and ends up going to live the, you know, basically retiring there in his old age. Bilbo obviously has amassed a great fortune from his quest that takes place in the Hobbit of the Dragon Horde. And he also is the possessor of the One Ring. And Bilbo is a rich man, basically. He lives in the Shire, but he's going to go retire in Rivendell, and Frodo is his heir. He's the heir to his fortune, and he's the heir to his, you know, Bilbo's quote-unquote estate. And when Bilbo leaves, Frodo not only inherits Bilbo's everything but he also inherits inadvertently it is to inherit bilbo's quest because it comes to light that this ring needs to be gandalf comes and basically tells frodo like it's going to be your job this ring has to be destroyed you're the guy to do it so in essence what ends up happening is i don't want to be too descriptive and spend too much time on this i'm hope i'm being concise enough but frodo sort of inherits his own quest similar to his ancestor did in the old days and becomes the sort of reluctant hero, as it were. So, just like Bilbo. Same thing that happens to Bilbo. It's, it echoes exactly what happens to his relative. And they set out, Gandalf and Frodo, and Frodo's friends. Sam Gamgee is Frodo's friend, and he's actually Frodo's, and previously Bilbo's, gardener. He's the one that takes care of the gardens on the estate in the Shire, and becomes a great friend. Sam is a great friend of Frodo's. So it so happens that Sam, Frodo's cousin Mary, Mary Adoc Brandybuck, who is actually Frodo's cousin, which I oftentimes forget, Mary, and Mary, sort of Mary's best friend, Pippin, the four hobbits sort of set out for Rivendell with Gandalf on a quest, where when they arrive in Rivendell, to make a long story short, Elrond, the elf lord, sort of puts together a fellowship, sort of handpicks a team, as it were, to accompany Frodo and Gandalf on this quest to destroy the ring. It comes to light that this ring needs to be destroyed. And it's awesome because it's not only the situations that are... Throughout these books, it's not only the situations and the characters and the awesome set pieces and creatures that are presented, but the very real emotions of what the characters are feeling through these things, the fear, the sense of adventure, the sense of not knowing what to expect, the confusion, it's all presented very realistically. And that's what I think it always drew me into these books. It's the emotion. It's the very realistic. They feel very re- like very realistic stories, as fantastic as they are, because of what the characters are feeling and the descriptions of such things. And so basically... It starts out with those four hobbits and Gandalf. And did you want to talk about the cat, the rest of the fellowship one by one? Yeah, I was just gonna, just to get your uh, opinion on them. The first person of consequence, I guess, that they meet is Strider, Aragorn. Yes, who's, son of Arathorn. Oh, yes, <laughs> they meet him at a tavern early in their journey, and and he's always been the most fascinating character to me. I'm not in, I'm not entirely sure if it's because you know him the most based on the length in the, of the books in which he takes you know he's there almost from the very beginning. But yeah. What do you make of his character? He basically kind of tags along with them pretty early on. Yes. So early in their quest, the fellowship on on route to Rivendell, the four hobbits arrive. Gandalf splits off from the party, as he often does. If you guys know the Hobbit, Gandalf sort of comes mysteriously comes and goes. 
and much to their chagrin because they obviously Gandalf is quite powerful and quite knowledgeable and has great wisdom. And when he leaves these hobbits, they feel like, where the hell is he going? They're like, we exposed, need this guy. Yeah. yeah. So Gandalf sort of continues his traje- mysterious trajectory of coming and going. Early on in their quest, they arrive in a town called Bree at an inn called the Prancing Pony. And the hobbits are sort of getting to get their stuff together for the night. They're going to sort of come in from the cold in the shelter. And they meet this mysterious figure named Strider, who everybody seems wary of. They're saying he's a ranger, which is kind of a derogatory term for somebody who just explores the land without a lord and without a so-called reason. You know, it's somebody who's sort of presented as maybe maybe a little bit sort of like a mercenary. And it so happens that the hobbits are being a little too under the guise of, you know, cover. They don't want to expose themselves or their mission because it's said that they're the enemy's servants are on the, you know, are about and the enemy's spies are about and they have to be careful. And they're being way too loud and boisterous. They don't know how to do this sort of thing. These are hobbits. They're notoriously not adventurers. And Strider sort of takes an interest in them. And they think he's one of the bad guys, basically. It turns out that he's sort of put there, puts himself there to help them along. But the hobbits are sort of wary to come around to him until they realize that indeed he is somebody that Gandalf knows and trusts. And he accompanies them on their quest. And it turns out, not to get too far ahead, but it turns out that this is not just a ranger and just a man. He, that's sort of his disguise. He's actually comes from a great lineage and he's a great lord, and he's actually the man who is supposed to go on to be basically the king of men. That's kind of a long story, but this is somebody who is much more important than you initially think he is. Let's put it that way. And it's worth noting just to kind of structure it for people that are unfamiliar. They have to go to a specific place, Mount Doom, to destroy the ring. Right. So it's not like they can just destroy it anywhere. I think it's the same place it was forged. And this was basically a ring literally cut off a of Sauron's finger several thousand years earlier, actually basically removed him from the ethereal plane, as it were, for a while until he kind of is returning and, and tracking, you know, ultimately tracking them in order to find them with the, the all-seeing eye and stuff like that. So there's an interesting dynamic that's worth exploring there as well, that they do have a destination. I don't think it's known at this specific point, but it's known pretty early that that's where they're going. Yeah, they explain it in Rivendell, but when they get there. Yeah, so, so it's a little bit after when they meet Strider. Gandalf, you mentioned already, he's part of this fellowship. You want to talk a little bit about him? He's he's yeah. really the major holdover from The Hobbit. Absolutely. So he's the character that you know the best already, if you have read The Hobbit. Absolutely. And he becomes a great friend to Bilbo. And subsequently, when the Lord of the Rings trilogy starts, it's already intimated that he is already a great friend of Frodo's. There is a great intimacy and friendship there that exists already. And when he goes to Frodo to present the quest... They already know each other quite well, he, he and Frodo. And it's very sweet and endearing because Frodo is a much different character than Bilbo was. I think Bilbo was a little more reluctant, a little more proud. I think Frodo just loves Bilbo so much and he loves Gandalf so much. And he's much. it's very sweet in that he's much more trusting and much more apt to go along with things just for the love of his friends, basically. And he cares very deeply for his friends, especially the other hobbits that accompany him on the mission, because he really, truly doesn't want them to be a part of it. He's very worried about it, you know, and that's a very important character, sort of a character trait of Frodo that I always loved, actually. And I think Elijah Wood does really does that great justice in the films as well. 
very well cast. Gandalf is the most fascinating character for me and easily my, my personal favorite character of the stories because he's very mysterious. You really don't know, is this a man? takes quite a long time to know, is this a man? Is this some sort of immortal or semi-immortal being? You know, you know he has great magic. magic. You know he's a legendary figure already. You know he's sort of a known commodity. You know he's been around for many more years than a normal man would be. So, it, But it's always shrouded in mystery and the way he comes and goes and sort of comes and goes into the story and what is he doing every time he leaves and everything. It's very... It's a very interesting character, and if he's really a big part of the draw of the story for me as far as, like, that character for me is such a page-turner because you're almost half-reading it just to see what the hell is going on with this guy and what is he doing and when is he going to pop back up again. And you know that he's a very interesting figure, Gandalf, and that he's very important. He obviously has great wisdom and knowledge about the history of things and also what needs to be done, but he's also a great... He's also almost hobbit-like in the fact of like taking comfort in all those things like eating and smoking his pipe. And he has a great love and affinity for the hobbits and the Shire. It's a great thing. It's a great contrast because it's such an important man that's taking interest in these seemingly small, insignificant creatures and the small, insig- seemingly small and insignificant part of this universe that he's taking such an interest in. And... There's characters in the story that bring that up to him. Like, what are you wasting your time with these things for? Like, what are you wasting your time with these hobbits for? You know, like the other wizards in the story that we'll talk about and stuff like that. He's a fascinating character. He's one of those characters whose character is painted through other characters' reactions to him, largely in the book. How people feel about how the various characters feel about him, whether they favor him or don't favor him. And a lot of his character is built up through the impressions of others, which I always thought was a really cool part of what makes him Gandalf. And also we'll get into a really cool thing that happens with Gandalf in the book and the, some of the cool things in the books, I should say, and the cool things that he does. Gimli is another one of these characters. Son of <laughs> And my ox. And my ox. <laughs> Did he just say... <laughs> I think he said ox. <laughs> we have... A, when we saw the Fellowship of the Ring with my dad, I think we saw it with like a lot of people like in my family. Allie was there, I think, and others. Our dad got a little mad at us, I think, because Dig and I started laughing during the movie when that ha- when that scene <laughs> happened. And I had no idea. Similar to when Spider-Man came out and, I, you know, Bonesaw is ready, <laughs> which is another movie I think I saw with you in the theater. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time you laugh at it and you're like, that's funny. You didn't realize it was going to be like such an iconic moment in that movie. And it's the same thing with that the my axe thing, like where that became a... A lot of people found that quite funny. We were not the only ones no. that found that laugh out loud funny in the movie theater. <laughs> But talk to me a little bit about Gimli, son of Gloin. So the interesting part is about Gimli that you should bring up first is he's a dwarf lord, I guess. But he's higher in the lineage in the of the dwarves. But he's the son of one of Bilbo's original fellowship of dwarves from The Hobbit. He's the son of Gloin, who's one of the original dwarves that goes on the dragon quest. And he's there. He's put in place, maybe a little bit because of his heritage with that. It's never really discussed, actually. But I guess he's considered a great dwarf warrior. For They don't really consider themselves a warrior like an elf or a man would. But he's an important part of that race. And he's already his, his lineage is already involved in the story of the ring through Glowing and, and Glowing's other dwarf comrades. But it's also painted a little bit more later on in the story in the first book of the Fellowship uh, of the trilogy. 
you see a little more of his dwarf ancestors and what happened to them, which is really interesting in the minds of Moria. But he's along for the quest, and he seems like a really, like a typical dwarf. You know, he's very stout-hearted, very brave. You know, he's kind of ready. He sort of has that sort of, you know, dwarf thing where he's, like, ready for action, you know. And it's funny. It's one of those things where it's like, did Tolkien, and we'll get a little more into this later because I have a question for the listeners, too, that I'm really interested in. Is this a Tolkien thing that started this thing with the dwarf character has the battle axe and is sort of the stout-hearted and, you know, extremely courageous, but maybe their weaknesses, you know, riches and jewels. Did he start these things? Did Tolkien start these specific things? And that there's going to be a party, a and d like party, you know, which is built of a man who's great with a sword and he's got wisdom and an elf who's agile and has great vision and is great with a bow and a dwarf who's got the battle axe. Is this, you know, how much of this stuff did Tolkien start and how much of it did he borrow? I'm very fascinated with that, you know? Those archetypes are in everything. They are. It reminds, me, such a a it reminds me of like thing. Gauntlet even. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great yeah. question. I would, I would venture to guess that this might be the origin of some of that. Some of that at least. You brought up the bow-wielding elf so we can talk about Legolas next. Legolas. What do you... Think of him. He's always been one of my favorites, personally. He's great. If you remember, if you think back to The Hobbit, mm. the whole sequence where they're hiding in the barrels, he comes from a, an elf city, a specific elf, important elf city. He's an elf prince, basically. And he's sort of put in place to represent that part of the world and that part of the elven kingdom. He's not of Rivendell, where the fellowship is being put together. I can't think of the name of the place. But anyway, so he and he's an elf prince and he's extremely, you know, he's a brave warrior and sort of that kind hearted, regal, beautiful, everything you would think of that the elves are portrayed as sort of the pinnacle of that sort of thing. Really a fascinating and important character in the story. Definitely one of my favorites, too. And you, you cannot think of him without thinking of Orlando Bloom now. No, just, just you can't. Yeah. You just can't. No, you know, I, I, I struggle with that with all of the characters, which is a little unfortunate for me me too i don't know i i pictured i remember specifically with aragorn picturing him so much different than he was portrayed in the movie and that was kind of i don't know that's the one disappointing thing about any film that kind of aaron always brings up the the example of gone girl which is a great example with an amazing amazing story with ben affleck kind of just being the the protagonist like you don't see it any other way yeah no absolutely that's well put the final member of the of the company of the ring that we haven't talked about is boromir who you had brought up a little bit before, but we might as well touch on who that is before we move on. Because then I really want to talk to you about Sauron and kind of the antagonists and like their whole, the whole goal. Absolutely. First of all, who works for them and and all of that. We should talk a little bit about that. We also have a bunch of questions that we should probably wrap up on too, but I I want to bring this exactly where you go, but before where you want to go, but before. This is great. But Boromir, I think is, we have to talk a a little bit about. Yeah. So one of the men, He's a son of Gondor, which is one of the great cities and one of the great realms of Middle-earth. He's one of the sons of the kings of Gondor, and he's a great knight, and he's sent to represent that part of the world and that part of the fellowship. And he's a really stout-hearted, brave warrior who comes with, I think he's a little bit, you know, the men in the story are presented as a little bit... They're presented as a little bit callous. They don't have maybe the manners of the elves. They're a little bit they're a little bit uppity in the fact of like they just want answers. They just want to act. They're very brave and they their hearts are in the right place, but they're you know, they're a little brazen. 
And he's like the definition of that. He comes with like questions. He's he's sort of putting down the elves and he's questioning who Aragorn is and like, who's this guy? You know, like I'm a, one of the great knights of Gondor. Who's this guy? So he kind of comes across in that way of like he, he's a stout hearted guy. He's in the right place. He's, you know, he's obviously extremely courageous, but he's coming across as maybe being a little overly assertive and being a little overly, you know, thick. And it turns out to be a great character who also has a brother that we'll meet later on that figures very prominently into the story and a very tragic sort of triumvirate between himself, his father, and his brother. His brother is one of my favorite characters, Faramir, who we'll meet later. Yeah, so that's Barmir. And I guess talk to me a little bit about Sauron, the all-seeing antagonist, who's quite, quite mysterious, but also quite singularly obsessed with rectifying this thing that happened to him many thousands of years prior. Right. I always was really quite fascinated with Sauron and his kind of worldly representation of his power with the Nazgul and the and obviously all of these kind of proxy races that he uses on his behalf. But he was always really fascinating to me because no matter how much power they surrounded the ring with in terms of manpower, in terms of might and wisdom and wizardry and all those kinds of things, like it never really quite seemed to be enough that this dude was like almost godlike in his power. And like it was in between planes almost. Yeah. And so he always struck me because we were talking about like, is, are these things influence, you know, were these things major influences on other products and IP and ideas later on? I don't really know that it was very common outside of, I guess, niche sci-fi or fantasy, kind of nascent sci-fi and fantasy of the time to have an antagonist that was seemingly completely unbeatable, almost a Superman-like quality to him. At the time, that must have been pretty unique. We almost take that shit for granted in video games and contemporary fantasy and contemporary sci-fi of having this overwhelming force on the other side. It didn't seem almost even that realistic, but... That's what always drew me to him. Not uncertainty or fear, but this almost palpable, like, this is a waste of your time because this dude's just going to get you. Anyway. Absolutely. And it's presented that way early in the book that he basically destroys everybody when the ring is cut off his finger. He's t- taken out of power for a while, but everybody on the battlefield is killed, you know, as a result of that. But so, yeah, so it's well said, Kyle. Like he, he, Sauron is this all, presented as this all-powerful, you know, seemingly undefeatable evil entity that... I guess it's sort of, for lack of a better description, described, historically described as coming in and out of power. And every time he's defeated, it's known that it's only going to be for a short period of time before he kind of regains strength, takes on a new form, and comes to wreck shop again, basically. And so, as it's presented in the trilogy, the Rings trilogy, he's presented as this all-seeing eye in this distant realm of Mount Doom, which is like this giant mountain with this actual physical giant eye that's this all-seeing thing that could see everything. And what he does is, I guess it's presented that what he does is he sets out nine kings, nine dark riders, which are his henchmen, that basically he sets out into the world of Middle-earth to search for this ring. You know, they're sort of the, the nine kings that he corrupts. And sort of makes into his minions. And they set out into Middle-earth to search for the ring. And that's why the Fellowship of Nine is set against those nine riders. That's why nine were selected to set out. You know, each one to set against the nine riders, as it's said by Elrond. And he's sort of presented as basically doom. I mean, basically, this thing that can't be defeated, but maybe could be eluded long enough to get rid of this ring. That's how it's presented, and that's what's so frightening about it. There's never a discussion 
about defeating Sauron, even by the most powerful people that you see in the story from Gandalf to Saruman to Elrond to Galadriel. All of these people never once, it's never even discussed defeating this thing. It's just how long can we sort of elude this guy in order to throw this thing into the volcano and get rid of it? That's the only thing that's going to preserve tomorrow, basically, <laughs> you know, and it's frightening. It's quite frightening. And he's never, as far as I know, now the movies obviously show him in the beginning at the battle when Elrond's younger and the battle of the Lords and everything like that. But it's never in the books. It's never, he's never really described or presented in a physical way. It's sort of this all powerful, like you said, godlike evil entity that they're up against, which is quite. Like you said, that must have been quite a jarring thing in literature at that time and quite frightening because the less you know about something and how it operates and exactly how powerful it is, is a frightening notion, you know? And I always loved that. I always loved that in the book. But I always also, it's sort of set against, especially later on in the story, you can see where they're going. You could. It's so big and so menacing and so dark that it's there that you see physically where you're trying to get and you know he's there but you don't know what you're going to be encountering what you when you get there and that was always a very um always an image that stood out to me was that towering place that you could see from hundreds of miles away and you're gradually slowly getting there you know even though you know it's your doom you're basically slowly getting to this place you know i'd be taking my time if i saw this thing in the distance yeah for sure dude you know that's how i always thought of sauron so where do you want to take it from here? Do you want to get deeper into some of the characters we've not discussed? Or do you want to take questions from the listeners and see where that brings I'd us? Love to hear wanna... what, I'd love to hear what people have to say. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I'll bring up, Kyle, now before sure. I forget to do it? I was talking about it a little bit earlier, and I'm very fascinated with this. Maybe overly fascinated with it, but you guys tell me. With all of the conventions, we all know how much impact and how much influence the Tolkien stories in the Hobbit and the trilogy had on fantasy. But I was very, very curious, as I said, where it really started. How much of this did Tolkien really start? Now I'm talking about as far as, you know, knights and dragons and elves and dwarves and wizards and all of the conventions, dragon quests and, you know, fellowships and... Yeah, like parties. Inns like you were and saying. pubs yeah. Yeah. and all these things. How much of this these conventions that you think of in a very D&D way, right? A very Dungeons and Dragons way. How much of this did he start? And when I went back and looked, obviously you already talked about brilliantly, but King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, which dates back centuries, you know? Yeah, many centuries. A lot of it started there. And you talked about, which I didn't even think about, Robin Hood, which is another English, old English carryover. And I, I suspect that a lot of the fantasy stuff with dragons and everything started in the Asian provinces and maybe and maybe like you said in the Viking things and it was sort of adapted by the Western the, the European and more Western cultures. Yeah, there was uh, I think we discussed this on a previous episode about we something did a little bit that there was much more cultural cross pollination between traders and just disparate elements of various tribes and organizations and countries and nation states than I think we realize. If you look at Viking longships and the ornate and beautiful wooden headstones basically on them. They're very Asian. Were these people talking to different groups and right. all that kind of stuff? So I, that's a long-winded way of saying that I think that this shit was all seeded from various places and it simply required someone like Tolkien 
to proliferate it to a mass audience. And right. we understood after that as a culture, this is fantasy. This is the actual encapsulation of what would become Dragonlance and what would become D&D and what would become Terry Goodkind and what would become all of this kind of Game of Thrones. Right. That's a, I mean, that's a huge thing. You know, Game you know, of Thrones is, it, I, I like Game of Thrones. I've not seen it all. I have to kind of restart it. We discussed that on a previous episode too, but there would be no Game of Thrones without Tolkien. No, George Martin wouldn't exist without, you know, but you know, there's four books, Kyle, that I know through my research, which I didn't know previously predate Tolkien's works of fantasy. And I would like to know, I would like to involve you guys, the listeners, in letting Colin and I know if you guys are familiar with these books or if you recommend these books or if thing, if certain elements exist in these books that you know of that influence Tolkien, because I haven't had a chance to read any of them. And the four of the books that I investigated are The Well at World's End, another book called Jurgen. it's J-U-R-G-E-N, another novel called The Worm Ouroboros, and the last one is called The King of Elfland's Daughter. And these are all supposedly early works of fantasy that had some kind of an impact on fantasy, but I'm not sure how many elements they had that Tolkien had to be borrowing from something. So were these the things that Tolkien was borrowing? I'm very curious about it. So let me know if you guys, let us know if you guys know anything about these, these four books. So remember, if you support Collins Last Stand on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, you can get cool perks like early access for every week, by the way, a week early access to every episode we do of Knockback and my other shows, Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast and SideQuest. You can get them ad-free and all that. You can also have input on the topics we cover on a lot of these shows, vote on other people's topics We've done a few of them already this run that you guys have selected yourselves. And another perk of supporting us at the $2 or up level on Patreon, if you're able to afford it, is you can submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for our shows. I'll let you know the topics before we record, and then we will kind of, as I've done here, put them in a list and consult with you. I love it. Oh, and Kyle, Legolas yep. is from Mirkwood. Mirkwood, thank you. Mirkwood. It was really that. bothering me. I can tell it was. It, was... <laughs> it really was. Alex Ball and Straw Hat Ninja both ask similar questions, but I'm going to stick with Alex Balls. He says, if Alex Balls, sorry about that. <laughs> Alex Balls question. There you go. If you could be any of the characters, who would you choose and why? Oh, it's a good one. Good one. I don't know that I'm drawn to, on a, on a visceral level, drawn to anyone but Strider. So I, I think Aragorn would be my, my choice. I think Dad would be very proud of you for that. I think so too, because that's clearly Dad's favorite. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah that's so Strider. That's got you. a little bit of a hard on for Aragorn, you might say. <laughs> what do you? Who, I think it's Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, though. he loves Viggo. Yeah, <laughs> he does love Viggo. Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> who? Who amongst the characters though is you know whether it's a protagonist? Yeah, maybe your answer's Sauron. I don't know. It's definitely not Sauron. <laughs> Can you imagine? That would be amazing. If uh, you know, I think that would surprise some people. It's Sauron. <laughs> yeah, you want to be a god, basically. <laughs> I am a golden god. It's it's all right. Who are you drawn to in that respect? Gandalf. Yeah, no questions asked. He he fast. The character fascinates me. It's amazing how much I still don't know about Gandalf. And you know, exploring the Silmarillion, which we haven't talked about yet. You know, some other works, analyzing the trilogy and what where the characters come from and what they're about. Wikipedia. I still don't know a lot about Gandalf. He he's just a fascinating character. To which me. Gandalf do you which Gandalf do you like? Oh, you have to go with Gandalf the White. Mm. You have to go with Gandalf the White because it's so fascinating when he comes back and he sort of remembers what happened before, but not really. 
you know, it's definitely intimated that he was brought back to life and that he, you know, it's sort of intimated in the books. And you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, but that he is some kind of, it's, what are they called? The Maya. There's some sort of demigod put there by a higher power to rectify things, if I'm not mistaken. And he's part of that. By no means the end-all, be-all of that, but he's the part of that that the story centers around. Just a fascinating character to me. If you guys know more about Gandalf and I'm getting something wrong, let me know because it's actually edifying for me because I really i am fascinated, absolutely fascinated with this character. Not just in these works of fiction, but in all of fiction. He's maybe one of the most fascinating characters for me. Can I tell you which character I'm most sexually attracted to? I, I already know the answer. Oh, okay. Gimli. Son Gimli. Of yeah. I was going to say Shadow Facts. But, oh. Yeah, but, you know... Because I like to get a little freaky deaky. You got a little furry thing going on. Yeah, we were talking about the, the masturbating Care Bear before, and that was no coincidence. Shadowfax. <laughs> How many people name their horse Shadowfax, do you think? Everybody. <laughs> I'm going to name my hamster Shadowfax. I was going to say, I think it would be funny to get like a little, like, I already want to name our next Boston Terrier Rush, but in the future... Getting a Boston Terrier and naming it Shadowfax would be the fun, like this very mystical, beautiful, you know. I love this idea. I just yeah, just this First regal. Of all, I'm jealous, this, I didn't think of this. This regal idea that just name it Shadowfax. Just whistle for it. Yeah. Shadowfax, and then this goofy it's dog, just this goofy ass, with stupid ass dog. <laughs> Brilliant. Definitely sexually attracted to Shadowfax. <laughs> He's a horse lord. <laughs> Lord of horses. Got a big horse dick. (laughs) It's getting a little perverted here. Keith Farrell says, my mom was the one who turned me on to the books, though she thought they were too advanced for for little eight-year-old me and confidently offered me 100 pounds if I could read even the first chapter. Wow. For people that don't, 100 pounds, about 140 bucks. I can't call what I spent that 100 pounds on, but I do remember it was more money than I could comprehend back then, circa 2001. That's a lot of money still. Yeah. I am obviously biased, but even acknowledging that, I honestly think the film trilogy sits among the great films of all time. Is that just the fanboy talk, talk or is there, is there some merit to, to it? Um, he also asked about the Cimmerillion, which we should discuss. Yes. Especially because the Cimmerillion was done before the trilogy. <laughs> which is so strange. And no one wanted to publish it. No. And I think he might have even struggled getting it published after the trilogy came out. It's very weird how Tolkien was treated, because as you were saying, like an Oxford scholar, clearly a genius level writer, and he was like struggling to get people to pay attention to him. There's even stories about like when he was writing the appendices for the trilogy that they were like, all right, dude, fucking enough already. We can't, we literally can't like typeset this and all this kind of stuff. Like. (laughs) And, and then, imagine talking to a guy like that, like that, no, like it's with crazy. like almost disdain. And then there's the story of the guys in the '60s. And you know, do you know the story about the copyright issues with this? With the I book? don't think and so. No, I think it was Huffton Huffton Mifflin or whatever that yeah. that weird yeah, publisher yeah, yeah. is. They totally failed to trademark Lord of the Rings and the book in the United States. No, way. and a publisher figured this out and started just publishing the books without his permission and not paying him. Because HarperCollins has it now, right? I don't I don't know who owns the rights to okay, it now. I think it is. But there, people should go look at this. There's this crazy story about this kind of renegade publisher that figured out that Tolkien did not own the trademark or the, the and the book was in public. It was basically in the public domain in the United States based on what they did. In the States. Like they entered it into the public domain uh, unintentionally. That's embarrassing. And they started, it, it's incredibly embarrassing, embarrassing. for the United States. I'm, I'm embarrassed for the United States to hear this. And so a publisher figured that they could legally start just selling unauthorized copies of the book. That's gross. They were legally allowed to do it. And Tolkien, in this very early grassroots, very pre-internet 60s campaign, shamed the shit out of them, apparently. No way. With he, like, he himself? Yeah, like and a bunch of readers and fans of his like shamed them to such an extent that they stopped and paid him. 
Wow, good for him. Yeah. And them. And then they, like, solve the legal problems. That's disgusting. I mean, I know they had legal recourse, but, I mean, legally they could do it, but that's gross. Keith Farrell here, though, other than his interesting story about the 100-pound payment from his mom, brings up the movies, which we've not really talked about, the Peter Jackson trilogy. Yes. You were also talking to me earlier before we went to the diner for lunch about the Hobbit movie, like the the two- or three-part Hobbit movie, which I have no interest in. And we were also talking about... Yep. The Amazon series that's coming up, which you were saying is a is interstitial between the Hobbit and the Fellowship. They're saying it precedes the Fellowship, which is interesting. That makes it a little more palatable to me because when I heard that they were going to do a Lord of the Rings TV show, I'm like, can you just fucking stop? Yeah, please? and it's not, and Peter Jackson's not ruled out. They have the two primary writers for this secured, but there's still a lot. First of all, I had no idea that Amazon, Netflix, and HBO were vying for this thing, and Amazon won. I didn't know that, and. It's a huge budget. I think it's a $500 million budget. Which is outrageous. That's huge. Dude, it's outrageous. For, for context, by the way, Netflix spent, I think, $12 billion or something like that on original programming That's last insane. year. So literally one-sixteenth or whatever it is, one-twenty-fourth of that budget is just for this show. For one show. And all they're saying so stupid. far, as far Very as stupid. I know, let us know if you guys know more. As far as I know, all they're saying that it's multi-season. They're not saying that it's two seasons or 12 seasons. So that's a lot of money. You know, that's just and and they're not they're still apparently trying to court Peter Jackson into being involved with this somehow, whether it's using the sets and settings in New Zealand. I don't know how much wet is going to be involved in it, but it's fascinating because there's really not it's it's pretty new. Apparently, the deal is only a couple months old, but, you know, apparently they're trying to get this thing out for as early as 2020, which seems a little little unfeasible, unfeasible to me, but we'll see. To Peter Jackson's great credit and to the credit of those behind the film and the Tolkien estate, which finally kind of let them do something because it wasn't the first or second or fifth or tenth time someone was trying to do something like that. They, I think, did the books great justice and proliferated fantasy to a greater extent than anything before or after it. And I think it did a great favor and a great service to nerd culture. In fact, I really do believe that the Star Wars prequels, which began in 99, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which began in 2002, are two of the major components. I'm not saying the only components, but two of the major components of the final, after decades, of the final crossing of the streams between mainstream and niche nerd culture. And I'll just reiterate what I've said in the past, that Dagan knows this more than I do, but I know it too, because even through college, nerd culture was not really a, a thing that was accepted. It's really quite remarkable that Nerd culture is as accepted as it is today. That Comic-Con is as big as it is in packs. Sure. And it would have been unthinkable that the biggest tel- the biggest t- series on television was the Game of Thrones 10 oh years my, ago. Can you or, imagine? And 20 years ago would have been impossible. Oh. And now you have things like West Westworld. You have, obviously, Game of Thrones. You have The Walking Dead. Yep. And all these things that would have been on fucking CW. All the superhero stuff. You know, it all, I think, began... In some way with Peter Jackson. I think he gets a big chunk of the credit for that. Absolutely. These movies are very faithfully and gorgeously realized. Very, very respectful and very, very respected adaptations of books that were almost almost unadaptable. I mean, the great care and TLC put into these films is can't be overstated. They're gorgeous. First of all, visually... I have never, ever, from the opening moments of the Lord of the Rings movie, of the Fellowship movie, when they, when Gandalf's riding his cart into the Shire, it's everything is per, every detail is perfect. You know, I think it's very important to realize there were visual 
realizations of the stories that came before. You have, you know, the Rankin and Bass Hobbit film, and you have Bakshi's Lord of the Rings movies. So as low budget and inferior as those productions were, they did come first. And also couple that with the fact that the books are quite descriptive. So if you're paying attention, it's not impossible to get those details correct. You know what I mean? But to Peter Jackson and all the people in Weta and all the practical effects people and the actors and the costuming people, those movies are aesthetically absolutely gorgeous. I think the casting is very is is awesome. I don't think you could say enough about Ian McKellen, first of all, as Gandalf. But I have to. I'm just going to bring up one thing because I don't. I want an opportunity to talk about it, and I don't think a lot of people really are cognizant of this. There was a BBC in England, a BBC radio drama. I was telling Colin a little about this earlier, of a radio drama of the Lord of the Rings trilogy back in 1981, and there were adaptations that made it over to the United States and there was an adaptation that made it into Canada as well. But I'm specifically talking about the English BBC radio drama. It's 26 half hour installments, 13 hours total covering the entire trilogy. And an interesting anecdote about it is Ian Holm who plays Bilbo in the Peter Jackson movies plays Frodo in the radio play, interestingly enough, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And it's a, it's a who's who cast of, like, Shakespearean British actors. The music is beautiful, the sound effect work is beautiful, and the voice acting and the narration is absolutely impeccable. It is actually better. I will go out on the limb. I don't think a lot of people have listened to it. Unfortunately, it used to be all on YouTube, and it's not anymore. They took it down. But there are still ways. I know it's on Audible. So if you have Audible credits or whatever, download it in installments. It is absolutely sublime. And it's very little known, I think. But Peter Jackson doesn't talk about it a lot, as far as I know. But he borrowed heavily from these things. And, of course, most of the actors are different. But you could see even the acting borrowed from the voice acting in the radio plays. The radio drama is absolutely incredible. And it's a little more faithful to the books. Less is left out. For instance, the whole Faramir arc is largely intact, much more so than in the films. I just wanted a brief moment to mention it because I'm very passionate about it. I heard it probably for the first time around 10 years ago. I used to listen to it while I was animating. And it's, I think Sublime is not an overstatement. It is absolutely wonderful. So if you guys haven't heard it and you want something that's not quite as good as the books, but even better than the films, check it out. Very cool. But I love the Peter Jackson movies. I think I think they really got it right. But I never talked to you about your impressions on the whole, largely, of the trilogy call of the you know the not the hobbit we'll talk about that after but the peter jackson lord of the rings trilogy what do you make of it what's your stance on it i think it's great i i quite enjoyed the faithful representation to the best of their ability of a very thick and very dense you know trilogy of books it's a great undertaking even at a three-hour length per book to reduce something so dense to something so understandable and a lot of people's including Aaron who's never read the books but really enjoys the movies most people in this world's understanding of the trilogy and Fellowship Two Towers and Return are all through the lens of Peter Jackson's representation in nine hours or so Mm. of this very thick and voluminous story and I think that you have to respect the shit out of that I think it would have been better served as being like a five six seven eight season 
TV show. Okay, initially. And, and I, yeah, and I think that we're maybe going to get that, and I don't know that that's really necessary at this point because Peter Jack. When you have something like what Peter Jackson was able to pull off in his team, I don't want to give just him credit. Lots of people make films. And also, like you were saying, from from Andy Serkis all the way, you know, all the way to Elijah Wood and all these amazing character actors yeah. that really encapsulated and did such a fine job. And, you know, especially with Andy Serkis kind of proving that, you know, in the, in the Jar Jar Bink era that that it was not the CG character that made or broke a character, but the acting behind it and the direction and writing, yeah. which, of course, Ahmad Best didn't benefit from when he played Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> I think that there was something to be said there, too, that. They were the perfect combination to me of practical effect or at least setting and special effects. You couldn't represent Rivendell as a set, really. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how you would do that. It would be very, yeah. But you can represent the Shire as a set, and they right. did. Right, and they did. So I think that it was, a, instead of doing the George Lucas, everything's on a blue screen, no matter what situation, I think that they were much more selective and much more dutiful in their approach to portraying it in a believable way that would stand up for many decades to come. And I think that if you look at those movies today, unlike the prequels, they do stand up because they don't rely quite as heavily on. Now, there's a lot of weird shit with the saturation and the frame rate, I think, even of the shooting. If I recall, I don't know if it was The Hobbit or The Fellowship or the trilogy. I think it's The Hobbit that's filmed at 60 frames, which yeah. is very weird. Yeah. For, for people that don't know, you know, gamers are so obsessed with frame rate 30 and 60, typically typically now 60 and even 60. higher. You can get things running at hundreds of frame rates, which is totally unnecessary. But the human eye sees things most realistically at 24 frames a second. Exactly. And they added this patina over the movie at almost overcranking it. I think that's the proper terminology. I think that's right. That it moves at twice, more than twice the frame rate that a movie is actually supposed to move. Right. And it gives it this flowing and weird aesthetic. Yeah, it's like a motion blur. But I think that's Hobbit. I don't think that they did that in the trilogy. Yeah, I don't know. I can't speak to it. But that's a motion blur type of right. thing. Right. And it adds a dreaminess to it. And, you know, and, and it's... An ethereal, like an ethereal quality. Right, exactly. It, right? So I respect the shit out of what they did. And that's why I think that when you... When you hit, you know, like when they do Spider-Man over and over again, for instance, right? We're about to get to the third iteration of Spider-Man, I think, in the last 15 years. Like, and I'm not talking about the third movie. We're talking about like the third trilogy or the third group of movies, which yeah. is fucking insane. Stop it. Stop it already. And I'm not saying that the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man was perfect. And, I'm, and it, those movies obviously got worse. And I don't care too deeply about it anyway. But yeah, I like why it. do you like if something's done properly or good enough, then I think you got to kind of leave it alone for a little while. And <laughs> I don't know like why... I'm a big fan of new stories, and I'm a big fan of not crossing platform streams. Me too. Video games can tell video game stories, and movies can tell movie stories, and TV shows can tell TV stories, and this constant reliance on telling the same stories in different and new ways is really quite frustrating to me because I think it's just tiresome, and that's my only concern about the upcoming TV show. Even if it doesn't necessarily get into the trilogy itself, which I can't imagine it doesn't, then, you know, what's the point? Ryan... Van Wingerden. Hello, Ryan. It's not a real name. Says, something that I believe gets missed in discussion is Tolkien's life and specifically his time in France during the Great War. That's World War One. in case you guys uh, are curious. I was hoping we'd cover this. Tolkien wasn't sent over from England until late in the conflict, and at Somme, he created Trench Fever, which, inva- which, which invalided and sent him back to England. While he was in English hospitals, pretty much his entire battalion and most of his closest friends died. My first question is, and we're only going to get into your first question, Ryan, because I really want to focus on this. You're asking a little bit more about things we talked about already after this. But he says, his question is, 
Do you think that his experience in the war and his potential survivor's guilt affected the Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings is the story of a war to end all wars, and the melancholy which in which it's portrayed, I believe, mirrors his time in the war to end all wars, which is what the Great War was originally called. Absolutely. Of course, it didn't work because less than 20 years later, we were fighting again. What are Euros and Dagon's thoughts on this? I love that. I, I was hoping to cover this. What I want. Think, I really what, want to hear your take on this, Kyle, because you're you know you're an expert in, in history and specifically this sphere. It's not terribly uncommon for an author or a creative person to represent the fears and tribulations and aspirations and glory and whatever the case might be in subsequent writings or pieces of art, paintings, sculptures, whatever the case might be. And so I think it would be. I think it would be necessarily impossible for that experience to have not affected seeped in somehow. Yeah. Even if it was subconscious and I doubt it was, and I don't know enough about Tolkien, his estate and the many volumes of writing that have been done about him. Yeah. I don't know him at all in yeah, that respect. Yeah. Right. So I don't know how deep they've gone into it. I don't know that. I don't know how open of a book Tolkien was in interview in interviews. He's been dead for a long time, but I don't know. I mean, he was in his sixties when the trilogy was published. I mean, this is not a man that's been around for very, you know, recently. So I don't know like how open he was. I don't know how penetrative journalists were at the time to yeah. extract information out of him. I yeah. think if this was more contemporary, we would have squeezed him dry. Yes. You know? Or tried to. So I think that that's a product of the era, which I think is a problem for us answering these things conclusively. But I can't imagine that you saw the Great War, World War One. we didn't call it World War One until World War II started, was horrifying. And I don't want to discount warfare as being universally horrifying because of course it is but to put it in the context in the american revolution we only lost five thousand men and right. that war lasted eight years right at bunker hill which was a glorious although costly american victory in 75 1775 it's not like we lost five thousand men we lost that many throughout the entire course the entire of the conflict war. right now we're talking about single shot muskets and super inaccurate shooting and right. gentlemanly combat and column combat and all that kind of stuff you're only accelerating 150 years, and by the time you get to the Great War, 1914 to 1918, between um, the Allies and Axis powers, basically, or what would become them again, you have a, a, a terrible industrial conflict that ripped apart millions of people and their and their lives and their livelihoods and their and their houses and their cities and they were being gassed and they were being bombed and they were being flame thrown and they were being all sorts of and. I don't understand how you can possibly survive something like that and be like, no, that doesn't affect me at all. Right. That's going like to make it into your work. I feel like that just finds it into whatever you're going to do. Whatever you're doing. Yeah. That's my conclusion. And I only say that because it's not terribly uncommon to read about World War One. You guys can go read All Quiet on the Western Front, which is an amazing book about World War One, that I hope you've all already read. But if you've not, it's a great insight into the mindset of, of a soldier, very similar to the Vietnam experience through, you know, the things they carry or something like that, like seminal books that the screen you know, or the heart of darkness at the turn of the century there you go perfect there's something about people who have seen it and i i don't know about you Dagan, but i know people that have been in iraq and afghanistan i know people yeah. that have killed people i've had deep discussions with my marine friends and other people that have fucking blown people's heads off sure it's, sure. Not, it's not something that you walk away from no and that's gonna leave them that's gonna yeah. leave a mark that's so, gonna leave a you know so my assumption is yeah i think that it's probably an allegory it works its way in it i well i don't want to say that i don't know if it's allegorical but it certainly could come off that way no absolutely and i always saw it's funny because i did investigate a little a little into this because i always did see a lot of a sort of a universal good guy versus bad guy motif 
almost to specific degrees, especially in the trilogy, as far as you know the you know World War One slash World War Two trajectory of the Allies versus the Axis powers or whatever it is, all the way down to the Eagles representing the United States. You know they come in and out. They come at the most opportune times to save the day. Like it always seemed like, how can this not be what he's saying? And and it's worth noting that that was a common complaint about the United States in World War One. That we waited until we were going to win and then we got involved. And then got involved. Yeah. That type of thing. Like it, we were we were looked at as kind of cowardly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And maybe, you know, correctly so, you know. Yeah, perhaps. I, I would make the argument that it was not our war at all and we should have never been involved. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. You could get into a whole thing with that. And people did pepper Tolkien, apparently, with questions about this. And he always did sort of dodge it, as far as I know, in a way of, of not directly answering, but saying, well, I guess maybe, you know. After a while, just saying, like, oh, I guess maybe it seeped in just through my subconscious or whatever type of thing. I think C.S. Lewis, supposedly, was a little, who was a great friend of Tolkien's, was more prone to, to answering those questions in his work. And they were great friends. And, you know, it's even said that C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of the songs and poems in the trilogy. So that, that's always, I'm so glad that that got brought up because I think it's very important to talk about. And it always really did resonate with me. Like, how could that be an accidental thing, you know? So certainly my experiences paint, you know, not that I've seen a war, but certainly the experiences, good or bad, that you go through do paint your own experiences moving forward. Sure. And, you know, I thought about this with you recently, Dagan. Your generation, I bet you don't know many people that served. I don't know a a heck of a lot, to be honest. And I'm not close with a lot. I know a ton of people. Like, your generation totally dodged it. Mine didn't. Yeah, there wasn't a lot. Yeah, because Iraq was even before we graduated from high school. Right. Right, ninety one, whatever it was, yep. ninety ninety one, and then yeah, there was that space in between. You guys, the were second told. Iraqi campaign in Afghanistan. Yeah, because I was a senior in high school when nine eleven happened, so we were prime. You really we're prime, were prime age. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really thought about it in those terms, but you're correct. You're absolutely correct. I know more than a few people that have gone over there. It's which is including people I went to college with that were ROTC and then graduated and then immediately got sent over. So, you know, thank you for your service. <clears throat> absolutely, here, here. Matt Gibbon says, some of my favorite memories of middle school were Lord of the Rings marathons with my friends. We would start watching all of the extended edition DVDs in the evening and see who would fall asleep first. They would be endlessly ridiculed the next morning. They are really long and it is very, especially the extended editions, very hard to get all through, through all those in one sitting. I think I did it with dad one day, actually. I love the fact that there are extended editions. Yeah. You know, because if you're a real purist, you do miss those things that are missing. You know, initially, but they were very mindful to, to to make the director's cuts and the extended editions and everything. Very, very reverent. The films. Brandon Hardman, no relation to Hardman from Mega Man Three, says, <laughs> "What are your thoughts on the upcoming?" And by the way, this particular Brandon Hardman, I, I talked to him on Patreon briefly, and his he said that before I think he listened to the Mega Man One, Two, and Three knockback, he didn't realize that there was a Hardman in Mega Man Three, and now his icon on Patreon is Hardman. There you go. Right. Hey, there you go. Well, he, he asks us what we've discussed already. What are your thoughts on the upcoming Lord of the Rings series that has been announced for Amazon Prime? I kind of want to spin this question a little bit differently since we already discussed this a little bit, which is yeah. we didn't really talk about the Hobbit movies that capriciously kind of split the story into multiple movies and, yes. and kind of failed. Was that a cash grab? Well, obviously. I mean, and I'm not saying it's exclusively, you know, I identified a cash grab, an obvious cash grab in that, and I identified an obvious cash grab in the third edition the arbitrarily split apart third edition of the Hunger Games, which suddenly was going to be two movies. I was like, are you kidding Great me? Great point. Like, you could tell the first two in one movie, but now you need two movies to tell the last book. Come on. I hate that shit, but 
do you want them to take another crack at the Hobbit at some time in the future? I'll give you guys my impression of the Hobbit, and I'm sorry that I, I'm a little sorry that I haven't seen them all, only because I would like to be able to talk about them more. But I dis we were talking about this earlier, Kyle. I disliked the first Hobbit movie so much that I never even saw the second two. I think that book is so special. And who plays Bilbo? Martin Freeman? I, I think he's wonderful. It's not his fault. But there's something about that first movie that, that, it, that just missed the mark for me. I know a lot of people feel this way. And I just wasn't willing to commit myself to the second two. I just knew I wouldn't like them. And I was very curious specifically about Smaug. Smaug. And how they handled Smaug. But it's just not right. It's just not. I don't understand how Peter Jackson could have missed the mark so by such a wide degree when he nailed it with the trilogy. I don't get it. You know, I honestly don't get it. So, but I'd like to hear hear people's sort of reflections and impressions of the Hobbit, the Hobbit trilogy. Yeah, which is totally it's ridiculous. I didn't say that <coughs> on its own because, in a way, extending it is fine because I know if you want to hit everything and not miss out on anything that you consider important in a, in a purist sort of mantra in a, in a purist way but making it into an obvious cash grab is a mistake and missing you really missing the tone of the of the books is a is a huge mistake you know they had to know there was something not right with those films gotta get them out <laughs> gotta make that money daniel schiffer says what's your stance on the why didn't gandalf just get the eagles to drop the rings into the start with uh, supposed plot hole in the book mm. so what he's basically saying is like they probably could have just dropped the ring in pretty easily before shit got hairy never even thought of that they said and then he says with an ellipsis at the end though a fully garrisoned org army with bows yeah anti-aircraft my friend yeah it, it everything arrows. has a conceivable now plot holes annoy the shit out of me if they become too numerous and too overt and i've said as much as i love the handmaid's tale there are massive political plot holes in that that story that I can't fucking handle. Actually, yeah. it's actually actually starting to annoy me, but it's so good that I, I like let it go. But if there's little plot holes like that, they don't really bother me. Please remind me who wrote the Eagles thing just now. Daniel Schiffer. Daniel, I just want to say also, I think you could chalk it up maybe in a little bit of a suspension of disbelief thing that the Eagles kind of came and go. If you really look at the path and the the place of the Eagles in the story, they kind of came and go as they wanted. It seemed like there was a little bit of a hesitance to really commit themselves. I mean, the Battle of the Five Armies, yes. But it seemed like they were a little bit, I don't want to say opportunist, but they weren't really down to be there along the whole way. It didn't seem like, well, maybe they would have been because <laughs> they could have been quite helpful. It may, maybe it is allegorical, man. You know, I, it seems like it to me. The Eagles are what really drives that home for me, actually. Those characters are what drives that home for me. Like, how can this not be what this means? They're Eagles. <laughs> they could have been anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? So for me, but as far as I know, he's never spoken to it. It reminds me of um, the Wizard of Oz bombs with Wizard of Oz, which is incredibly allegorical yeah. as well to American politics at the time. Very and much so. The the Wicked Witch of the West <laughs> and the Wicked Witch of the East and the Emerald City and the man behind the curtain. And I'm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. A and lot of was... interesting reading about that. Joe Lawson says, is physical set and costume design in films a lost art? Even Peter Jackson's own follow-ups to the Lord of the Rings films gave into dependence on CGI. Mm. Will we ever see something as visually stunning as the Lord of the Rings films again? I will say this. We shit on Episode 7 and Episode 8, but from mm -hmm. a visual standpoint, 
they do fuse practical and special effects in a really wonderful way. That Very doesn't, well done. That doesn't rely overtly on one or the other. And we've discussed this. We just did a Return of the Jedi conversation that you probably, depending on the order I put these up in, you probably have already heard. But there are movies that are balancing that line too much. And I did mention, I think it's unfortunate, but I don't know if you have anything else to add about that. Probably not. You know what, Kyle? I think that with special effects i think there's a i think there's finally i mean you have ilm and you have weta and you have the very high-end high-budgeted special effects things that hold up and i will say the lord of the rings peter jackson's lord of the rings trilogy are going on 20 years old and they do hold up very well but i think outside of the ilms and outside of the wettas i think there's finally a realization largely that practical effects just hold up better you know, they're more prone to hold up because the technology technology is evolving so rapidly and people's expectations of what they're going to see is evolving so rapidly that when you stick with, you know, practical effects are practical effects and, you know, to a larger degree and they just hold up better. And I think that's there's a lot of wisdom in that, you know, coming full circle. It's almost it's again, it's almost like the ebook thing. Like, I guess there's not going to be any more. You know, we have we have digital effects now. Look how far they come. I guess there's going to be no practical effects. And then, you know, at some point there's a realization and everything comes full circle again, you know, that there's a place for everything. You know, there's a place for ebooks, there's a place for practical books, tactile books, you know. So I think it's a very similar thing in that. And I like that. Will Ellis says, these films stand out as my fav- personal favorite Gilman of all time. I don't know what the hell that means, by the way. That has to be a typo of some sort. Maybe I think my own Gil fault. is the a form of currency in Faxanadu it, for it, the NES. <laughs> Final Fantasy. Oh, with that's the, right. With the two towers being my favorite of the three. Though I never grew up loving Star Wars, the Lord of the Rings trilogy came at a time I was looking for something to attach to. I was young at the time and had never considered myself a fan of any particular entertainment property until these movies came out. It really helped me discover interest in different things, especially what many would consider nerd culture, and really helped me find myself. For many from my generation, it is considered the Star Wars of our generation. It even follows a similar trajectory with an underwhelming prequel series to, get to, to, go, with, to go with it, though I actually do quite enjoy the Hobbit trilogy, warts and all. I suppose my question is, do you think it's important in today's world for younger folks to have an entertainment property to hold on to, or rather something to call your own to help you identify with as you get older? Mm. That's an interesting question. Well said. As I said earlier, I identify Lord of the Rings ownership really to our father's generation. The boomers really, I think, own that more than anyone does today, if that's the case. I mean, that's my perspective. I know the films, as I said earlier, did open up a whole swath of people that would have never even been exposed to it because they don't read books or don't care about books or just never would have been exposed to fantasy novels. But I do think it's important. But I think it can be... I also think it can be destructive. I think that you can get... Nerd rage is a real thing and you can get like really disappointed if you hold on too tight. Yeah. And I don't think you want to hold on too tight where it slips through your fingers a little bit or that you start to get frustrated with it. And no. I think that you see ownership of Star Wars turning out that way for a lot of people where... They just can't handle it anymore. And I'm getting close to that point myself. I hear what you're saying. It's important to have a voice and it's important to have an opinion. And I think if you're invested in something, I think you deserve a little bit of sense of ownership in it. But to let it really sort of erode your emotions or let it get you up to a certain point of emotion is a is is problematic, I think. Benjamin Kane. Hi, Benjamin. Says the Lord of the Rings trilogy is one of my all time favorite trilogy of films. And he spelt favorite with a U. Well, so he must be Canadian or British. Favor. The Return of the King has a scene that always makes me tear up, and it, it is that my friends you bow to no one scene, and everyone bows to the hobbits. Even when I prepare myself for the scene, I cannot help but tear up. Thank you for your memory, Benjamin. I love that. 
You know what scene I love so much? I don't know if it's in the books or, in the, or if they do it in the movie when Merry and Pippin meet on the battlefield. And uh, forgive forgive me because I don't know which one says it, but it's either Merry or Pippin sort of on his last legs during the end of the battle. And he's like, am I am I dead? <laughs> you know, as he's like, as, as his friend is helping him yeah. up. I love that each of the hobbits has like this courageous arc and sort of pairs off with somebody and becomes like an, just another one of those valiant warriors. And if you look at them from the beginning, you know, they're always courageous and they're always kind of down for each other and there's always a friendship. But it's very emotional if you look at each one of the Sam's, obviously, you know, how loyal he is and Mary's and Pippin's. If you look at each one of their arcs, it's very touching and very emotional. And you know what, Kyle? I just want to say real quick, that's another thing be- beyond the aesthetics and beyond the budgets and special effects and even the casting and everything. For me, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, the, the films, really capture the emotions of the books that I think are really an important part of it. And you know what scene I always think of when Gandalf falls to the Balrog in the Mines of Moria and they, they flee and they get outside and they're just completely distraught. They've just lost like their most important member and they're crying and they can't get it. The hobbits are crying and Legolas and Boromir are trying to like... Or Legolas and, and Aragorn are trying to get them together, and Boromir is like, "Give them, give them a moment, for God's sake!" Like that, you know what I mean? They're they're and they're just they're just crying, and it's like, oh, it's just get like that moment in the film might be my favorite for translating what happens, maybe even strengthening what it was in the books. You know, that's always a very touching moment for me. I love that moment. Zach Brown says, "While maybe it's just me and my circle of acquaintances, but I've always subscribed to the theory that the book is better than the movie." I'm an English teacher, after all. However, when pressed to identify a film that tops its literary source material, The Lord of the Rings trilogy is the first that comes to mind, particularly true with The Two Towers. I enjoyed Fellowship as a novel very much, but once we get to Towers, I find Jackson's work to be much tighter than Tolkien's tomes, without sacrificing character development, key details, or important themes. So I ask, how do you feel about movies versus the novels? How do you feel about the movies versus the novels? Thank you so much, Colin and Dagan, for a continually fantastic podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Zach, for your kind words and your question. I often ascribe and almost exclusively ascribe to this as well. I think that the best you can possibly hope for for movie adaptations is that it's just as good as the book. Yeah. I think that, as I said earlier, my favorite book, my favorite piece of fiction of all time, The Road, the movie is just as good as the book. I don't think it surpasses it. Yeah. And I would say that the movies do justice in The Lord of the Rings to the books, but I don't think that they can possibly surpass the books. No. No, I think it's a case. You know what I think it's a case of called with something as vivid as the Lord of the Rings and something as vi- you know something as illustrative and visual as the Lord of the Rings books. You know, as we said before, Tolkien's language is so descriptive. But sometimes I can think of a few moments, mo- a few of my favorite moments from the books in particular. It's kind of cool. On one hand, it's cool to read something and leave the visuals and leave. The, the scenarios up to your imagination but sometimes it's kind of cool to see it realized on film especially if you pull it off right and I think of the scene in the two towers that I always love the confrontation between the final confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman when Saruman's up in the ta- his tower of Orthanc and Gandalf is trying to com- you know trying to get him to like giving him a chance like saying you know I'm going to give you a chance to come over to the right side and be on the right side of history here and Saruman is, you know, defiant. And Gandalf breaks his staff in half. You know, he says, you know, Saruman, your staff is broken. And it just bra- it just shatters in his hands. I love that. And I loved seeing that on the screen. You know, it was so cool to see that on the screen. So I think the fact that Peter Jackson and his people did so, and the actors did so many things right 
was kind of a treat. And even, I don't think it ever surpassed the book, like you said, but it, it, they certainly matched the book for me in a lot of cases, which was kind of, which is a great feat. It is. You know, it is. Cole Bulas says, I was the perfect age, 14, to be introduced to Lord of the Rings when Fellowship was released in the theaters in 2001. That is a good age. So no other series of films holds as much nostalgia for me as this trilogy. However, after not watching the trilogy for several years, I was pleasantly surprised to discover in a recent rewatch that it holds up amazingly well. Also, the last hour of Return of the King might be the most emotional I've ever gotten while watching a movie, even though I had, been, I had seen that movie countless times before. That happens. Definitely. That definitely happens. Definitely. There are certain moments in movies where you, they're just going to get you every time. You f- and, and, and sometimes you find something new in it when you return to it. You know, something that didn't register the first time registers or you get you gain a new perspective. So I love that. That's a really good point. I think these movies have that. Indeed. Indeed, my friend. Final comment comes Please. from Tyler Goodwin, and it's a, it's a good question. He yeah, says, what would you do with the one ring to rule them all? <laughs> you guys are amazing, and thank you for all you, what you do. Please keep doing it. You're thank amazing. you. We, we will do that. We appreciate you. Thank a you. great question to end our quest Oh, I see what uh, you did there. What would you do with the one ring? Oh, goodness gracious. My my mind turns to unsavory <laughs> to unsavory things at first. That's terrible. But what I would really do is help the homeless. Oh. No, I don't know. I, I don't know. I have to think about that. Do you have anything yet? I would for think that? I would immediately destroy it if I could. You don't want anything like that in the to world. To exist? Wow, yeah. that's very valiant. I didn't even think of that. Now I feel embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that for one second. That's too it's too powerful of a thing. I wouldn't even want it. Like it's it's too corrupting. Can you imagine what you could accomplish? Who's, with that? who's, who's touched that thing and hasn't been corrupted by it? Yeah, well that's the thing. So like why would you ever even want to fuck with it? And know? what do you make of that? That whole thing of like Gandalf and later on Galadriel, who we didn't get to talk about too much, sort of you know, outwardly resisting the ring and saying, like, don't tempt me with this thing. Some people have said that that's kind of presenting them as weaklings that almost can't resist versus that's making it versus to me, it's like, no, that's even making the most powerful beings. That's presenting how powerful this thing is. Yeah, that's exactly how I would. Right. That even the most powerful things almost can't resist it. It's not it's not a surprise that Gollum succumbed to it. It's not a surprise that, you know, that Frodo succumbs to it. It's not a surprise that anyone who's near it succumbs to it. So when the most powerful beings in your party or in, or in your, you know, your ecosystem of friends and acquaintances and, and journeymen are talking about its temptations. It's all you need. I agree with you. It's all you need to know about its power. And, and that who am I to assume that I would be able to resist its power? Right. This thing that that this basically apocalyptic war is about to occur over. You know, I think we're reading into it too much, maybe, but at the no, same time, I don't think so. That's what the entire book's about is about destroying power. Exactly. Know? So I wouldn't do anything with it. I would have a little fun with it for a couple of days and I would destroy it. I don't think you would be able to do it for a couple of days. I think you'd be done. An yeah. hour? Yeah, maybe. Half a I day? I just think that once you wear it and are under its spell, yeah. I, I, don't know that you, I don't know that you have any power anymore over what you do. What you if know? I just played tricks on people with it? Oh, you could do that. A little practical effect, you know, a little you candid know. camera kind of thing. Like said, you know, made noises on like, what the hell is there? And just, or just take the, you know, take your thing of pencils and throw it across the room. <laughs> just freak people out with it all day. That would be fun. It would be cool to pretend you're a Jedi, I guess. Ooh, I like that idea. Yeah. Just. <laughs> I reached out to Dagan to force choke him. I actually felt a little tightening Did there. You? What is happening with you? You're, you're old. <laughs> He just lifted me to the ceiling. That didn't work, but that's because I'm a few pounds overweight, probably. 
that's it for us, I guess, Dagan. Do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap it up before our lightning round? Our lightning round. No, I think that's it. I think that's it. That was well done. <coughs> I enjoyed you, that. Uh, me too. Sorry I keep much. coughing. I, I don't, I, I'm not sick. I have a little tickle in my throat. Do you? Yeah. Water's my, not doing it. My daughter was getting sick when I left, so I don't know. I think something's going around, which is weird. That's always weird in August, right? Like, no one's supposed to get sick in the summertime. Yeah. I Allergies, too, though. That's true. Yeah. There's a little scratch, a little tickle. All right, Colin, son of Gerard. <laughs> Let's do this. All right. And my ox. Just say, just pronounce it axe a little better, Kimley, because I'm not sure what you just said. <laughs> but it kind of sounded like ass. Did you say axe? Did you say axe? I hope he just said axe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, each your own, to each his own. Exactly. Come on, Gimli, son of glowing. Those guys got, those guys are packing fucking Coke, Coke cans down there. I don't know if you want to be. <laughs> Offering up your ass, but hey, man. Can I tell? Can I say one thing? Somebody let me know if I'm not crazy in this sentiment. You know what always bothered me a little bit about the Gimli character, but just the dwarves in general, as they're presented in the in the Peter Jackson movies, the battle axe. I would rather see like a stout, like a short handled giant axe, like the axe part big, rather than that long pike with the little axe at the end of it. Yeah. I don't like the little the long pike with the little axe. It gives them well. I think I, it must be they're so short they have no reach, so it must have something to do with. That I like reason. the reach idea. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. All right, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you stupid? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That I even thought that. <laughs> so, Lord of the Rings, Bilbo or Frodo? It's kind of a tough one. Bilbo. It's incorrect. Oh, it's Frodo. Fair enough. Gandalf the Grey or Gandalf the White? Gandalf the White. Yeah, absolutely. Elves or dwarves? Elves, for sure. You're a racist against dwarves. Absolutely. <laughs> They're greedy. <laughs> Merry or Pippin? Mm, that's a toughie, too. There would Pippin wouldn't even be involved without Merry. Yeah, that's so true. So I would go with Merry, I guess. Merry seems a little more important. Yeah. Fool of a took. <laughs> Orc or Goblin? Orc. Orc are the ones that are like bad elves, right? Yeah. They're like, yeah, like dark elves. Gold or jewels? Jewels. Good choice. Sword or sorcery? Sword. Really? Over sorcery? For if, I, if I was making myself a character, I'd rather be like a warrior, yeah. Yeah. Sorcery seems exhausting. Like maybe you got two fireballs an hour before you have to recover. Right, exactly. I don't your have nose the, starts bleeding, you're exhausted. I don't, I don't have the mana you. necessary to... <laughs> There you go. I have only enough mana to cast some curative spells every so That's because you don't know the secret. That's true. Of mana. Oh. See what I did there? Oh. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Galadriel or Elrond? I can't believe I have to even think about Elrond. That is incorrect. That really bothered you a little bit, didn't it? Yeah, because Galadriel is quite beautiful. Elrond's beautiful, too. That's some skin-deep shit right there. Elrond's beautiful, too. Fine, Elrond. (laughs) They're all beautiful. Mr. Smith. <laughs> See what I did there? Yes. Boromir or Faramir? You better not say Boromir. No pressure. I would say Faramir, I guess, yeah. You have to say Faramir. Boromir bothers me a little bit. Yeah. Well, Boromir is presented... That another. That's another character that's presented... You know, like, there's a lot of greys involved. You know, he falls to the power of the ring. Mm-hmm. And pretty much almost almost slays the protagonist over it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm saying. Back to the question we got from from the listener. Yeah, I'm not I'm not fucking with the ring. You know, like I, it's, I understand. Who that. am I? I have no will. These if these great warriors are are falling. Like, yeah, 
No, you it's can, true. It's a good point. I make podcasts for a living. <laughs> you know, like, what have I seen? That's a good point. Kidding me? That's a good Don't point. tempt me. If Gandalf is basically saying, don't tempt him. Don't tempt me. I'm already done. I'm already dead. I hear you on that. You got a good point. You're very practical. Sauron or Saruman? I think Sauron is is much more. Why? What? Would you have a problem with this? No, too? no, no, not not at all. You're. I. This just reminds me of something that I want to bring up real quick. I mean, and Sauron I know is like all powerful. It's just. It's just. No, no, no. You're you're correct. Yeah. It's just that Sauron and Saruman. It's like New York Penn Station and Newark Penn Station. Seriously, you couldn't name Saruman something besides Sauron. It's very confusing. Yeah, I. Yeah, it is. It is. Like, I don't know, something that started with an L or a G, like, you know what I mean? That that really bothers me. It's really like the Newark Penn Station and New York Penn Station thing. Like, really, you couldn't call those two train stations something different. It's very confusing. Come on. Give me a break. Troll, uh, yeah, I'll go this one. Troll or cave troll? Troll. You're incorrect. No. I'm, Eagle- I'm really fucking this one up. <laughs> Eagles or Ents? We haven't mentioned the Ents. So the, they go, I love the Ents, but I'm going to go with the Eagles. The Eagle. The I'm an Eagles. American. That's true. <laughs> and the last one, Kyle. Pipeweed or weed? Weed. Although I love I to see what they're... I mean, they're, it seems like they're smoking some potent... Yeah, and there's some, different brands and... Yeah. Whatever I, would love to smoke, I would love to smoke a pipe with... with I'll just roll up a Dutch with uh, with Gandalf. Actually, what am I th- what am I saying? That- is that what pipe weed was supposed to be? I my assumption is that it was it was hash or something like that. Right, right, right. They took great delight in it. Let's let's put. You it know what way. it could be though, based on the era. You know, opium was still pretty big before World War II, and it could be that too. But I don't think it is. But but you know, chasing the dragon wasn't exactly an uncommon thing in Tolkien's day. So it does have effects on them. It's not like it's supposed to be them relaxing with a cigar or something like that it's certainly like a psychotropic of some sort yeah you would you would think by the sheer enjoyment they get of it it's really the wrong terminology because weed's not a psychotropic but you 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 guys understand what i'm saying yeah some kind of yeah some kind of some something beyond tobacco smoke weed every day (laughs) that's it for me day and you have any closing comments before we go you shall not pass (laughs) how many times do you think they had to do that take I don't know. I want to think Ian McKellen got everything right on the first try. I'd like to think. Like, he's like Sinatra. He's wonderful. He just comes in and says that that's the take. So good. Well, that was a fun topic. Thing. Thank you for bringing it up. Thank and you I'm glad much. we covered that. I hope you guys enjoyed our little take on The Lord of the Rings. Highly recommended you go read the books. Definitely. I would read the books before you watch the movies, but if you're lazy, you can just go watch the movies. Hobbit first, do you think, Kyle? I still think The Hobbit is superior as a book to the trilogy. I, I don't want to say it's necessary prologue, or it's it's not necessary prologue, but it, it's certainly useful prologue to the stories of the Fellowship. So, right. yeah, I would recommend that. Sure. Well, thank... I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Fly, you fools. <laughs> Fly, you fools. That was fun. It makes me want to go back and read them again. Yeah, me too. I'm into it. It was a half a lifetime ago that I even read them or more than that. So. I don't know. We'll see about this Amazon show. Let us know if you guys know more information than we than we know about this thing. Yeah, we're on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter. What What is it? Digging likes to draw? Uh, no, that's Instagram. Digging 1973 on Twitter. Right. right. Digging 1973. Hit me up, my friends. And I'm at No Taxation, of course, on Twitter. And CLS Moriarty on Instagram. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. You can get every episode a week early. You can submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for all of the topics. You can vote on topics, submit topics. Get ad-free access, exclusive podcasts, Q&As, etc. Your help over there allows this show to continue, so please do consider it. We will see you next time for more CLS Knockback. Until then, 
Goodbye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Azan Isa Al-Raisi, Ahmad Always, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Jeremy Brokos, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Jason Camargo, Matthew Canoy, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Chris Cochran, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, David Cox, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanicos, Travis to Pew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gassian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Nicholas J. Gorblish, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Dominic Rastini, Miranda Grubba, Random Guy Radio, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Asa Haas, Josh Yeager, Clarence Johnson, Paul Joyce, Greg Julefs, Jeremy Key, John Clote, Kevin Kamaki, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Jackson Lasuqua, Daniel Laws, Joe Law. Austin, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lewin Ray Loper, Brendan Lyle, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, Michael Martello, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Mad Mock Media, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Ryman. Schneider, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Riley Smith, Gerard Stuave, Stephen Summingit, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Esteban Valentin, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael Edward Went, Griffin West, Mike Wan, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Richter86, Barrick, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Wyatt Henry, and Donk2015.